Welcome to the Geek Saga Podcast, brought to you by Geek Saga Entertainment. Hi, I'm Tara Lynn of Geek Saga Entertainment, and thanks for joining me for the Geek Saga Show. This episode, which is called When Fandom Goes Too Far Part 2, the hashtag Stop Toxic Fandom Movement, is a follow-up to a 2022 webcast that I hosted on Toxic Fandom, and this particular one will focus on the aforementioned hashtag Stop Toxic Fandom Movement and feature a more in-depth look at our experiences with a specific toxic situation that has run rampant in the Star Trek fandom for far too long. I am joined by returning guests Paul Jenkins and new guests Marianne Butler and Bill Waters. So why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves and then Marianne and then Bill and then Paul. Cool. Hi, Marianne Butler. I am editor-in-chief at nerdbot.com. I am very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Tara. My name is Bill Waters, day job, I'm a software engineer, then other times I'm everything from event producer to photojournalism and some writing as well across a number of outlets. You can find me on Getty Images and a few other outlets and yeah, I'm looking forward to, to chatting. Yeah, hi, I'm Paul Jenkins. Uh, I've been in the entertainment business for many years. I was the third employee of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I wrote The Origin of Wolverine for Marvel. I've uh, been the narrative director on I think six platinum selling video games. So I've been doing this for some time. And I got gray beard for it to show it. All right. And as I mentioned, I'm Tara. You can find me at A Geek Saga on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. In the first When Fandom Goes Too Far episode, we focused on toxic fans in general and how the internet and social media have given wannabe keyboard warriors a place to air their grievances with little to no fear of repercussion. And also, in some cases, made it easier for these people to surround themselves with a veritable army of followers. We discussed everything from gatekeeping to ship wars, from fans attacking creators and vice versa, to fans creating cult-like micro-environments within fandoms. And we mentioned several case studies, but one specific case study that we didn't touch on was the Axanar problem. And I'll give you guys a little bit of a secret. Yes, this portion of the webcast is <gasps> scripted. <laughs> to give as brief a history as possible, Axanar was meant to be a feature-length Star Trek fan film, a follow-up to the successful Prelude to Axanar fan film that was released in 2014. And in the wake of Prelude's success, creator Alec Peters raised nearly $1.5 million between two crowdfunding campaigns. He then proceeded to create and sell merchandise and start putting together a studio and building sets for Axanar. Now, these activities caught the attention of CBS and Paramount, and they, of course, own the Star Trek IP, so a legal battle ensued. In fact, the lawsuit, as Marianne actually pointed out earlier today to me, was first announced on major websites, including Variety, exactly eight years ago? Was it eight years ago? Yep. Yeah, 2015, right? Yeah, eight years ago. The end result of this lawsuit was a settlement that only allowed for 30 total minutes of Axanar to be produced and forbade future crowdfunding and merchandise sales. The film has yet to be released, and in the ensuing years, many fans came forward to question how donor money was spent, leading to increasingly nasty and demeaning responses from Alec Peters and his followers. 
I think that, you know, the Axonar problem can really be summed up best with the rights of ownership of a property and level of gatekeeping by fans become so strong and kind of pervasive that it doesn't only become problematic within the fandom community and causing strife and separations between friendships and communities and fan clubs, but also the relationship between the studio and the fans. There's been how many dozens of episodes of various, you know, really great Star Trek content have been produced by fans over the years. Star Trek continues, phase two. Two, New Voyages, Myriad Others, Horizon, and also some really great, uh, I'm kind of partial to some of the fan audio-only broadcasts, very much like the old golden days of radio dramas. And those had all been chugging along just fine until this happened. And then, you know, CBS and Paramount basically blew the whistle and said, all right, everybody out of the pool. Yeah, I mean, the TLDR is essentially that Peter's profited off someone else's IP, but woe to anyone who questions what happened to the money he raised, why the fan film has yet to be made, or how Peters and his followers think it's okay to debase anyone who dares say anything that might even sound like criticism. It's uh, textbook, uh, wow, it's textbook toxic fandom. Say that sometimes fast. It's textbook toxic fandom on display, and that's what we'll be discussing on this show. Now, real quick, before we dive into our discussion, just want to mention the Geek Saga Entertainment Patreon. We have 10 tiers ranging from $1 a month to $40 a month. It's a great way to support us and receive some perks in return, including early access to podcast versions of any live episodes, which would also include this one, and also early access to my podcast-only episodes, plus show notes and a whole bunch of other stuff. So you can check that out at patreon.com slash geeksaga underscore entertainment. And now to get us like really started, I want to rewind a bit back to the early years and have Marianne and Bill, uh, let's get into how you guys got involved in Axnar and maybe why you aren't involved anymore and haven't been for quite some time. You know, this is what you want to talk about is your, uh, your choice here. So I got brought in to Prelude when they were doing their two days of shoots for what became Prelude to Axanar, the original short film. Bill was there the first day of filming, which was Gary Graham and Tony Todd and J.G. Hertzler. And then I came in the second day, which was uh, Kate Vernon and Richard Hatch. And we were friends with a couple of people that were involved, like Robert Meyer Burnett and Christian Gossett and Richard and Kate. And they had all told us that we should really check out this thing because it seemed like it was going to be really cool. And the person who was organizing it, kind of spearheading the whole thing, seemed to really have a good idea of what he wanted to do, which was, at the time, force Paramount CBS to release fan film guidelines, not unlike what Lucasfilm had done with their stuff. That is what we were told. That is how we were brought into this. And it really seemed like that was the plan. And we kind of liked the whole fight of the little guy going against the big guy at the time, just to say like, hey, people like this. Why can't we do this on our own? And Bill and I were brought in to be follow-up EPK and behind-the-scenes stuff. We brought our own video cameras, our own film cameras, and we're capturing things back behind the scenes like costume fittings and uh, some of the, I don't want to say, some of the main photographs of the cast from Prelude are shots that Bill and I took, and we never received credit for it. But like that's, that's where we came in, was back during the Prelude days. Yeah, pretty much 
same thing for me came in i think several months earlier alec had posted on social media about about this fan film that he was wanting to do i'm like oh this sounds cool and it sounds like it's going to be something that's got you know real industry professionals working on it and uh i think i'd recently you know stumbled across and started getting into watching some of the star trek continuous stuff with vic and company and so this sounded great so i reached out to him we talked a bit and so uh he brought me in uh largely if you've seen the sizzle reel for prelude or some of the other videos in the bts of the photography from that from the prelude shoot also between myself and marianne we shot most of the videos and content from a lot of the panels also the premiere for prelude that was down at san diego comic-con we held it that evening and so that's really where we came into it and then we shifted into being i i think you tapped you with associate producer me with associate producer whatnot as you're heading towards axonar itself and then that's that's when things started to get a little bit not exactly what we had signed up for originally and we started kind of stepping a little bit back over time we can kind of get into that as as we kind of roll along with things <laughs> as anybody who follows me anywhere knows but since i know we have some uh first time callers in the in the viewers here i had nothing to do with axonar ever <laughs> until I was in a relationship with someone who had worked on Axanar. And I will go into a little bit more detail uh, on that later. But I have the whole story up on my blog. It's at ageeksaga.com. And if you go into my blog and just search for uh, Axanar or Alec Peters, you will find a series of, I think it's five or six blog entries. I want to say it's six. I've heard tell that it could be as many as 47, but I only actually remember posting five or six. So, you know, so that's where the whole story is. And I will touch on some of it in a little bit. And of course, Paul, you've you've gone into this at great detail on Robert Meyer Burnett show just a couple weeks ago. So I don't think we need to rehash your whole story, but definitely give us the highlight points, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I joined this this project at a completely different period. You know, obviously, Prelude was really successful and, you know, it did really well, right? I ended up being the third director to work on what would be Axanar, like the, the sort of feature film stuff. But, you know, in between the time that it started after Prelude and the time that I came on, you know, there had been an entire lawsuit with CBS for uh, copyright violations. And so by the time I came on, it was two 15-minute segments that were permitted to be shot. And then, you know, the short version is basically that, that I had um, chaired an advisory committee here in Georgia, where I live, for the governor of Georgia. And I it was, it was on digital interactive because uh, I work in the video game world and also informally on independent filmmaking. Um, and it had to do with our tax credits here in Georgia because there were more films made here than anywhere else in the country. So I came in, I did this advisory committee and as part of what I would do, I would often meet a lot of people coming into town. I would certainly kind of help field, you know, I've, I've actually made quite a lot of friends who have come into town, made their first film here or brought a film here and help them out and you know, connect them to the film office or something like that. So someone introduced me to Alec Peters, say he just arrived in town with his Star Trek fan film. Um, and the first time I met him, he asked me that day, you know, would I be willing to help him with the script of his of his thing and his, his project? And my my company is called Meta Studios, like M-E-T-A. Um, before anyone laughs, it's, it, it would beat Mark Zuckerberg by six years. Like that was from, from 2014. And it's an acronym for Media Education Technology and Advancement. So everything that I do is about creators because you go back through my career, Ninja Turtles, Tundra Publishing, everything I've done has been kind of guided towards uh, helping creators do what they do. And unfortunately, that's kind of the magic key to my heart. And I believe I met someone who sort of like finds the magic key to somebody's heart and then make, uses that as kind of a vulnerability. So it didn't work out so well in the end. 
now that we've all kind of talked about how we sort of got involved or got involved in the way far past, there's a few things that we're going to get into in this particular show. And what I kind of want to start with is the psychology of this entire situation. And again, because this is supposed to be a case study of this one particular micro environment of toxic fandom. Not everything applies to all situations, of course. But in this particular case, I think that the thing to start with is probably, and really because of the reason why the three of you are here, and in a way, like tangentially why I'm here, is that Alec Peters has a habit of turning on people who work with him, including people who were his friends even prior to working with him. It hasn't only happened with Axanar, but that's the thing that we're going to kind of focus on. And the reason that we have kind of fleshed out in, in some discussions and also research, I know I'm Paul's behalf for the documentary and everything is that it seems as if people start seeing who he really is once they've been working with him for a while. And so they leave his orbit, whether it's kind of backing away quietly, which is what I, I'm pretty sure Dean did at least at first, my husband who built the sets for Axnar originally, or he was one of the people who built them, but he was the main person, I'm pretty sure. So what are y'all's experiences with working with seeing things deteriorate and deciding to step back? And what has, what if anything has happened since, you know, did you speak out about it? Did you not? Did you keep your mouth shut for years and then say something in passing recently and then all of a sudden get, you know, completely attacked? Um, and again, because I know at least Marianne and Bill, you guys have a lot more history with this situation. Please don't, you know, don't say anything or don't, you don't need to talk about anything you don't feel comfortable with, of course. I know that I can I can probably start actually because it might be fairly relevant as I tee everybody else up to get a sense of like where this gentleman is now like what his behavior is like and and how it works you know you know I have been in this business for a really long time and since I started with the Ninja Turtles you can imagine that I've seen basically every type of fan or so I thought right now fan is short for fanatic and so we have to be careful at times you know to to understand that people take things really seriously or for example if you're working on a project you have to understand that you have you have quite a lot of power um sometimes you know fans will come up for a signature or something at a convention and it might be one of the biggest moments of their lives right like you, like there's a lot going on in the fan creator relationship and over the course probably especially of my working career the interactions with fans has actually kind of got a little closer a little bit more dynamic, a little bit more interesting for fans and also a little more dangerous, right? Because of the internet, I think, and because of accessibility. And so in my case, you know, working with this project, um, we came on board and really, you know, this is, I'm sort of like the poster child for no act of kindness goes unpunished, right? All we did was come on and help. Uh, we came on to, to be part of this project. Everything was fine. And at the time that we came on, it didn't take too long, I suppose, to find out that Alec Peters, who runs this project, seemed to have this really contentious relationship with lots and lots and lots of people, right? 
And some people have asked me quite fairly, I think. They've asked me, why didn't you see the warning signs, right? And there are two or three reasons for me personally. I think one of them is very understandable. When I came on board this project, I wasn't on board it for very long before my wife had to have brain surgery for a pain condition that she suffers from, right? So I was a caregiver for something like four months and this project didn't exist in my world, right? Secondly, because I do this professionally, along with my cat, Claudius, because I do this professionally, this isn't my life, right? It's not my focus. It's not even close to my focus, right? It's a project that we didn't really have to do anything with it. You know, we weren't working on this project. My wife had a brain surgery. I'm a professional writer and I write stuff for people all across the world. So I don't do Axonar, right? It's something that was going to come up at some point. It eventually came up probably around the beginning to middle of 2019, suddenly. And by that time, Rob Burnett had left as a director and I had come on board as a director. So I brought my production company, Meta Studios, in, bought my producer, Scott Conley. We brought in a bunch of people. There was another producer called Chris Mills who brought in some other people. And he, you know, he, he was the line producer on the project. And essentially, we got geared up and we got ready to go. But during that time, that's what, a year and a half plus? that's when I began to realize the person that we were dealing with. And it was touch and go for us, right? Like why continue to go with a guy that fights people online, that screams at people, that demeans at people. And what I had had to say to him plenty of times is if you keep behaving like this, we are not gonna be involved with it. Like Meta Studios, our core values written into the operating agreement of our company are transparency, accountability, and integrity. That's what we're all about. So we can't necessarily be even on the periphery of a project where people are cruel to each other or screaming or, or yelling or getting in fights, right? So we went through the October shoot and I think what people always need to work out about the psychology of this thing is what happens when you've got someone that has some profound kind of issues, they sanctify you to begin with. You are the best. I'm the greatest director ever. The other two were terrible. And he used to say to him like, mate, don't use me as a comparison to why the other two were bad. That's not true. I've known Rob Burnett for years, right? Just calm down. Don't say horrible things online. Be quiet. Don't say anything and make this film, which I think is really what we always do when we work on this professionally, right? I don't have anything to say about my working day I'm sitting in this basement most of the time, but, you know, outside other times, I don't have to broadcast everything I'm doing. And here we were broadcasting and broadcasting and broadcasting and yelling and screaming and creating this antagonism. So eventually I got to a point where um, he had done something particularly silly and it always highlights something that actually is pretty interesting to me, which is his basic lack of understanding of how this is done, like how you actually make a film or how you write a script or anything. He did it again. And I thought, well, I, I've tried everything with this guy. Why don't I just write him an email say, for sake, like a few F-bombs in there. Like, come on, man. We keep trying to tell you, you got to get this stuff together. And he sat on that for about a month and then wrote, because I said, like, we're going to have to leave if you keep behaving like this. And he sat in a month and said, you can't leave. I'm firing you. And then really soon afterwards, he went, and I'm suing you. And we went, you know, what? So, you know, it began like that, but but I think it's a pattern. Because the one thing I will say before I hand it over to Marianne and Bill is this, that the pattern that I see is actually scripted. One thing that I've noticed, um, I decided to document this by making a documentary about, you know, what I thought was like toxic fandom, because I've been around it so much. And this was a big case study. 
But once I started to document it, I began to find a few things that I realized were just patterns, right? And they were clearly right in front of your face. And one of them was a pattern of language that Christian and Rob and myself, the three directors, had not done any work for eight months, had stolen from the production. I mean, when he said, when Alec Peter said that I'd stole from the production, my attorney asked him point blank, you might want to clarify, how on earth did Paul Jenkins steal from the production? So this language was was typical. And then what I found was that he had this group called the Troll Hunters, where he actually organized all of this stuff to go out there. So you could see the organization of a few people whose job it was to go out there and spread this disinformation as if a fan film needed propaganda. So, you know, I've got all kinds of things that compare. I've got an entire folder of comparing directors, and it's completely scripted. When you look at that kind of behavior, you ask yourself, why do fan projects like Star Trek attract people like this? And that's really the question. As well as doing the photos with Bill during the prelude shoot, I eventually became the head moderator and the runner of the main Axonar Facebook page and one of the main moderators in the various official Facebook groups as well as running the Axonar blog because of my background in editing and writing and fandom in general. And it was it was a lot of fun. I really did enjoy it at the time. And I still believe that this project started with the ideal that, yes, a fan film could be created and tell this story and be done in the right way and make everyone happy with it. Like, I, I still do believe that. I think things definitely changed along the ways. But in running the blog and the Facebook page, I encountered a lot of negativity about both the project and Star Trek fandom in general. And when people found out that it was a white female running these things, it got pretty nasty also. So that was not fun. Part of why I ended up leaving the project had to do with an encounter with someone in one of the Facebook groups where this guy had been spamming kind of constantly, which was against our group guidelines at the time. And we told this guy, please don't do this anymore. And he continued to do it. So he was removed and blocked and banned from everything. And he messaged everybody that was listed as moderator for this Facebook group, because we were all about making sure people could contact us if they needed to and having a list of everyone who was in these positions. And he demanded to know why he was removed. Someone in the moderator group gave this guy all of my information, my phone number, my email address, and a couple other ways to contact me to find out why he had been removed. I don't think that was done with bad intentions, but it happened. And the person decided to begin harassing me for removing him from a Star Trek fan group. I don't know why I became the point of ire for this, but I'm still dealing with this God, what, six, seven years later that this same person is still harassing me? <laughs> that was one of the first times where I was like, you know what? Maybe this group is not, not the best place for me because they don't really seem to understand what can happen if you, for lack of a better term, dox someone in a group like this where people are willing to kind of go above and beyond to harass somebody. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was the beginning of the end for me. 
with this group of people. You know, what's funny is on the wider topic of, of toxic fandom is to me, there's nothing more quintessentially geek and nerdy than a couple of kids out of the playground arguing who could beat up who Batman or Superman, right? It's that, that's, that is what fandom is and about having those debates and different sorts of passions. But once upon a time, we're still friends. I might think you're bonkers, you might think I'm bonkers, but you are not intrinsically a bad or evil person for thinking contrary to me. But these days, in the past couple of decades, it's, uh, and again, it's part of it's going to be do related to social media where creators and fans began to interact. So fans felt they had more of a participatory voice that may have started some, some of that trend. But here you get to a point of where if you don't like a thing uh, or if you hate a thing, it all depends. You're going to have a different crowd that's going to end up hating you. But for me, what the reason that I started backing out after uh, it was a little, just a little bit after the, the Vulcan scene was shot was because I was seeing two different patterns is one is every person that would leave Axanar that was uh, had been attached to it in some level of production capacity. They weren't, it wasn't a handshake. Good luck. Sorry. Thanks for all your contributions and move on. I can't even remember a person who's left the production where everyone is singing Kumbaya it's like, hey, thanks for all what you did. No, it's you've left the production. They're crazy. They've stolen. It's again, to Paul, your point, it's always the same kind of script of you're a horrible person. And here I will weaponize whatever I, I can find out about you and nail you with this. And so that's what lets fandom think it can get away with that sort of thing. Gamergate, Comicsgate, all those sorts of things where it comes like, hey, it's totally legitimate to have a different opinion. You can love Marvel. You can love DC. You can hate one or the other. Great. More power to you. But that doesn't make you a intrinsically horrible, evil person. You kicked my dog. And so it was specifically, there was an occasion where it was a production meeting. The intent was to go over the production plans to proceed towards the shoot. And it was a Skype call. It shows you how long ago that was. And it was myself, Diana, and Bill Hunt, Rob Burnett, Alec, and whoever was the marketing or PR person at the time. I can't remember. Mike Bowden. Was it Mike? Okay, Mike. It probably was Mike. We're sitting there and they were discussing back and forth some of the edits that Alec had requested of the script. And the position from Rob and Bill was that, hey, I want to, you know, you've given your notes, you've given your feedback, let us do the revisions, and then we'll have a script where we can we can start breaking down the, the production and doing the shots. And Alec lost his mind. I mean, just lost his mind and went off on them going, I'm going to do more than notes. I'm going to help write the script and yada, yada, yada. And their position was like, hey, we're this is our day job. You, you know, you've got free enterprise, everything else that they've worked on, other sorts of things that real and legitimate in the industry, Alec had not. And they're not telling him, Alec, shut up, go sit in the corner. They're like, we got your feedback. Let us go and read, uh, rev the script and then you can do it. We'll do another round. But his level of anger and venomance to them when both of them had been nothing but absolutely some of the biggest champions of Alec and the project to that point, I'm watching him do this to two friends. And I'm like, I, I can't be a part. And then I think the only thing that really saved me from uh, a plethora of hate is at the time, I just kind of went quiet and ghosted them all and stopped responding to emails to Alec and the others at the time. Is anything that was required on the technical and the websites front, I just handed over the code, let them take it forward from there. But beyond that, you know, I didn't make any big statements about it and just kind of let it go quietly. And it relatively did. And I think I posted over an action monitor, probably fewer than I can count on one hand. And he's usually trying to be very kind of open thing because I love being a part of Prelude. I got to meet some wonderful people, get to see the whole thing and yeah, doing this production. I got to be on a set with uh, Richard Hatch going and that was just, it was really wonderful. And I will totally give it, Alec brought together an amazing crew of people to make this thing. And I've always been frustrated that we could have done that again 
but bigger and set the bar. But it was really the hubris. It was always the we're you know the the whole messaging that Aliquis presents. We were too good. They couldn't let us do the thing. You know that's kind of like it. Don't be silly. You know we can make something that's truly awesome and epic, especially with regards to fan uh, crowdfunded sort of things. But it was really the hubris and how much he poked the beast to that CBS and Paramount first stepped off. I remember at the premiere San Diego Comic Con when we did Prelude afterwards the after party we're there and i'm taking pictures going around and i had an uh, industry exec come up to me and goes those couple people you just took pictures of those are cbs execs they're not here don't take those pictures i deleted those pictures back out again but the thing was cbs was fully aware of what was going on they had people there they were being supportive actually it wasn't until later and then all the questions because again even if they had wanted to let this thing go forward at this point so many questions around money and everything like that, that's tarnishing a property that these studios now have. And they couldn't let it stand, even if all other things being equal. The hubris of we were too good. I, I'm honestly shocked that people still believe that because the thing is, Prelude was very good. But that's not ever going to be why a major studio comes after you, especially when there had been other fan projects before that had done maybe not as good of a job. I, I, I'll be honest, I haven't watched any of them, so I wouldn't know. But I'm sure I've been told at least that there were quality fan productions for Star Trek before that that were left alone. The problem wasn't that it was too good. The problem was that there was a lot of money involved. And in a way, like if I was CBS or Paramount and I saw someone lining their pockets with the thing that I owned, if it was a $100,000, it's like, ah, that's Trump change to them. But over a million just in the two crowdfunders alone, not to mention, I've been told that uh, Alec was taking cash donations at conventions. Yeah. And, um, you know, of course, there was always like the merch and everything. So, yeah, it's. Well, I can, you know, I can I can speak to this a little bit. I was like 20 years old and I came to the States and I met the guys that created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and we did it out of a small office in Northampton, Massachusetts and it blew up, right? It blown up for Kevin and Pete. I come in, I initially start working in editing side of it and all of a sudden I'm like working in licensing and this thing is exploding and now I find myself on the sets of the films and we, you know, this thing was crazy, right? Well, in that equation, we were the CBS. Like Kevin and Pete owned it, lock, stock, and barrel. So we had relationships with fans, and we had relationships with vendors, and relationships with broadcast that CBS have with their property, Star Trek. So I've been CBS in this equation, right? I've literally had to do the things that they had to do with their property. When we dealt with this, we usually would be completely fine. I mean, it's our style, I suppose, but we were completely fine with people doing fan stuff. You want to make some turtle stuff? We also knew that we couldn't possibly police it, right? There's no way for, for me to go down to like a, a fun fair or something and see Ninja Turtle stuff toys being the knockoff turtle toys being given away and, and do what? Police it? Like there's nothing that we could do and we were doing fine. It had its own commerce. You had these equations to make, right? Were fan films or fan created stuff, were they actually beneficial to us? Because the more fans created stuff, the more money we made because other people bought the toys, et cetera, et cetera. Like you have all these sets of equations that CBS Paramount have with Star Trek. And where we would have to step in was when somebody did something that was completely against the, the run of everything else, you know, where someone was 
absolutely enriching themselves to the tune of hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars because they were taking the Ninja Turtles and trying to, to, to project it as belonging to them. I remember very clearly, there was a guy called Abu Shadi, and we called him Abu Shadi because he owned the Middle Eastern territories. And what would happen is he would, he would come in and he would immediately, as soon as something became popular in America, he would go and establish the copyright in the Middle Eastern territories. And then you'd come in with your property, maybe three or four months behind him, and he would sue you and say, that's my creation, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And you had to basically deal with this guy and find a way around it, right? Essentially, it was sort of like, pay that guy off, even though international copyright trademark law doesn't work like that. By the time that we finished arguing with him, the time frame for its popularity in the Middle East might have gone away. So there's all kinds of nuances in how you actually deal with this kind of thing. To see that CBS Paramount had to shut down this guy means this guy was not doing what he was supposed to do. And frankly, raising 1.3, 1.5, whatever million dollars, and then bragging about it and not basically and saying you're better than CBS. That's probably going to get you in a lot of hot water. I know if someone had bragged to us, we own the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. If someone had bragged to us that they were making better turtles than we did and they were making loads of money from it, we would have shut them down in a second. So it's hardly surprising that they did. Let's be real. Not all corporations are Disney, right? Disney, they are the ones that will go after the person who's making replica lightsabers on Etsy. I, shoot, I'll be honest, Cartoon Network forced me to remove something I had for sale online. Um, it was a wig that I made for uh, Pearl. It's a character from this amazing show, Steven Universe. And Cartoon Network got it removed from the site I had it for sale on. And I was never, I, I, it would have cost me too much time and energy to get it back up. It was a wig. You know, it wasn't me creating Steven Universe printed things and selling them. And actually, when I ran Beach City Con, which was the first uh, Steven Universe convention in the US, Cartoon Network had a lawyer contact us and we were in contact with him throughout the entire planning. Like every couple months, he would call me, ask me how things were going because we raised like 25 grand or something like that via a Kickstarter to get the convention off the ground. Um, we could have done it for the money in our pockets, but we wanted to have guests. Um, so we were using the money to make sure we could have voice actors and whatnot there. But yeah, like we were in touch with that Cartoon Network lawyer on a regular basis throughout the entire planning period because they said, you know, hey, you raised a lot of money and this is something we own. Uh, obviously we had done nothing wrong and they were, the guy was, the lawyer was very cool and understanding, but that's how you handle a situation like that. You're contacted by a lawyer for somebody else's intellectual property. <laughs> You don't go around stomping saying like, I did it better or whatever. You just have the conversation with them about what you're doing and why. Unfortunately, I think probably by the time CBS went after Alec, it was it was too late for that um, well, because the other, of the yeah. amount of money he'd raised. But The other thing about that though, Tara, is, is that famously he sort of started lawyering everything in the, in the court of public opinion, right? Like, well, you know, uh -huh. you know, I can do that if I want to. I can do that. Copyright law works like this. And, and the craziest part about that is like, I would say 50% of, of his contentions about how copyright law works are completely incorrect. And once it gets found out to be incorrect, then it just pivots and it changes to something else. And here's another reason. And these, this is, see, what happened was everything seems like in this set of explanations. I learned this years ago that if, if someone wants to do a deal with you and you say, okay, great, and you're starting to write a contract or you just got a handshake deal and they say, yeah, the money's around the back in my brother's van. 
And you're like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going down the back and, and I'm not going down the alley to your brother's van. This is either an agreement that we all understand. And I'm not going to do something that doesn't make any sense, right? So this is the equivalent of the money's around the back in my brother's van. It's like, well, I can do this because technically this and, you know, you can't own it. It's like, listen, they own the copyright. And this project began as Star Trek colon Axanar. Right. Yep. Star Trek Axanar. You can't go back and change history and say it never was Star Trek. Yes, it was. And it's clear from the legal findings, it's clear from the lawsuit, it's clear from all that stuff from CBS that the use of Vulcans and characters that were in Star Trek and so on is clearly a violation of CBS Paramount's copyright law, which leads us all the way around in a circle to a recent finding in arbitration that after finishing the CBS settlement, and, and sort of moving away from CBS, he continued to do everything that he wasn't supposed to and violated this, every provision that we can find of the CBS settlement agreement. Now, in my case, we asked him about that settlement agreement once we found out about it. Tell us about this CBS thing. Oh, no, I can't show you that, he said. I can't show you any of that stuff. That's all confidential. But, well, are, are we getting ourselves in trouble then? Because we don't want to do anything that we're not. I work for a living with these right. people. CBS Paramount would be in my life. They're not in your life because you're a fan filmmaker, but they're in my life. I've written Star Trek before. So the idea that it could encroach upon my professional life would not be palatable to me personally. And so if you don't show me the, the CBS settlement agreement, I eventually found it in the commission of this, this um, documentary. I got hold of it and we got hold of it, you know, and then we're able to kind of basically bring it into the lawsuit. And it showed that all of these provisions, like you can't use the Axonar mark, you can't do this, you can't, you certainly can't sell merchandise, and you chose to do it anyway. So he's now had a, a finding in arbitration of $320,000 against him because he violated those terms, to which his response was, well, I'm judgment proof, you can't have any money. So I think anything is possible when you're willing to change reality and just make it fit the thing that you want. And I think that's a big symptom of what's happening here. Someone, you know, actually just made the comment there about basically the old Star Trek FASA game where they got some of the information out of. I remember that Rob, myself, and Alec went to Phoenix one time and did an, a, a long sit-down interview with a couple of gentlemen that had worked for FASA. And they talked about the whole thing. So I'm not sure. I think, I don't know where the, the footage from that ever went, but just that's, uh, uh, but someone, yeah, no, you're totally right on that aspect to it. And going to you know even talking about disney i mean the star wars fan films are a huge thing they do fundraising and they do their movies and all that stuff and that studio is entirely supportive of it and it's the one of the things i learned through all of this is that i always thought that a copyright holder had to reasonably attempt to enforce their copyright otherwise it can go fallow and it's like no no they can cherry pick to their little heart's content which again goes back to why cbs and paramount we're not sitting here talking about how they stomped all over vic mignola and his cast because they didn't and they made some really excellent follows on and many of their episodes were direct basically sequels to original uh, toss episodes from once upon a time and they were very nice adaptations they had some professional actors in there and so this isn't like the first time that cbs paramount ever noticed a thing and they became disney because disney themselves they have their own fan film festivals and competitions and really wonderful work that things have been going on this was very much because somewhere along the line because alec would talk about how he wanted to get this to be such 
such a thing that basically Paramount and CBS would be compelled to bring him in to produce Star Trek for them and fix it. And that's that was the level of really the hubris that that really got them into the trouble that they were at. No matter how other people were trying to encourage him to do, just shut up and we'll be okay. Because I think Abrams gave him that total gift that time during that interview where he said studios shouldn't be going after fans we want to try and make peace encourage them to have the fun i remember that whole talk it was like my god they might be letting us out of it and then immediately alec again didn't even poke the bear picked up a taser went and shoved it in the bear's face and cbs and paramount went well, maybe we're not going to drop it and you know that's where things continued again it's the if we would have just practiced a bit of humility it would have worked had it people leaving the production when things weren't working out for them or scheduling or just they weren't feeling it had it been okay that's fine but now Man, if every one of your exes is the crazy ex-girlfriend, if the girlfriends are all crazy, guess what? It might not be them. (laughs) Well, and actually, Mab, did you, I know you weren't PR directly, um, but because you helped so much with the blog and the fan group, fan groups or whatever, was there more than one? I think you said groups earlier on Facebook. What was your experience, if any, with dealing with just Alec kind of poking the bear publicly while the lawsuit was, I don't know, being threatened and then maybe first starting? He was very proud of the lawsuit. And I recall a couple of times that we were on phone calls with him or out to various dinners at conventions or things around still promoting the project where he would talk about, oh, good, they finally they finally noticed me. And look, they're they're mad. I made them mad. They're scared. They're scared of how good we are. It was a lot of that. And in one of the particular Facebook groups, and forgive me, I can't remember which one it is. I have folders and folders of screenshots, as I'm sure we all do. And uh, I've been reading through all of them again, just to make sure I have all of my stuff straight. Um, In one of these particular fan groups, he was kind of crowing about how how this was a great thing for him and for the project. And everybody who was associated with the project was like, um, maybe, maybe not. Can you like not say that publicly? Like you can feel that that's fine, but maybe don't speak for all of us when you say that, because for some of the, some of us, that's not great. <laughs> like it's kind of a strike against us professionally. Uh, it makes it look like we purposefully went forward with this thing after being told not to, which was one of the things that has been hotly contested, whether or not there were any sort of guidelines pre the lawsuit. Um, I don't know if that ever got proven. That was just something that was spoken about a couple times. And it's just, there was a lot of him trying to ask his followers and his fans to support him, which is fair. I think if any of us were in a position like that, and we felt that we were in the right, we would do the same thing like, hey, support me, help me out here. But it got to the point where he was posting a lot of screenshots and a lot of links to other people's posts, articles, videos, interviews, telling people, go tell them that they are wrong. Go tell them that I am I am right. Go tell them that I am better and that this is a silly, silly thing to be involved in. Hmm. One of the things before we move on to the next bit, which again, everything, all of this is is linked in one way or another, right? But 
One of the things I wanted to touch on before we move on to the next bit is Alec taking credit for other people's work or not giving credit for past work, because I think that all of you have had some semblance of that happen because of this. And of course, we've seen it. Well, I, to be honest, uh, Matt and Bill, I don't know how much you guys have looked into like the online stuff or, or seen from, I don't know, the years and years of posts. To be honest, I haven't even seen, I think like 50% of it. And I've been involved involved in this such as I had to be for uh, four years now, something. No, no, less than that. Less than three years, actually. Shock. God, it feels like a fucking lifetime. Huh. Anyway, yeah, one of the things I wanted to touch on was because it also ties into people walking away from the project and the sort of vitriol that comes from that. Um, I, Bill, I honestly, I think you got very lucky. I do believe that yeah. probably, and, and I think Mab, you, you kind of did too. You didn't seem to have any immediate fallback unless I've missed something in our conversations, but there's two things at play here. One, not being vocal about it in public online forums is certainly part of it. But two, I also think you guys also know Alec from other, circles. And I believe even with Dean, to an extent, there was a little bit of hesitancy um, on Alex's part to be super publicly nasty about him at first because of that. Because like when you have a whole bunch of actual mutual friends with a person, not just, oh, I know these people from online, but actual in-person friends, groups that you hang out with at events, etc. It's a little bit harder shockingly even for someone like Alec to immediately go on the offensive when they believe that you have wronged them. But all that said, as we know, there is a habit from Alec and his followers of trashing somebody who's walked away. You know, Rob, Robert Meyer Burnett, even if we ignore the not stealing thing, it's like he did no work for X amount of months. Paul was also in that you did no work for X amount of months. I, I know you guys- and so was Christian. So was yeah, Christian. Yeah, Christian. Christian, right, exactly. And of course, uh, you guys did like some BTS, you know, photo yeah. shoots and I think other, uh, maybe other actually like official photo shoots and stuff. And I believe it was you, Mab, you said that they, they still share photos of yours and there's no, you know, there's never been any credit given perhaps. I, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong there, but- No, um, no, because... that's, that's all completely correct. Um, the promo photos of Richard Hatch and Kate Vernon and all of oh. the other main cast from Prelude are all photos oh. that Bill and I took. Okay. Like Bill took the ones of Gary Graham. He took the ones of JG Hertzler. He took the ones of Tony Todd. I did the Kate Vernon and the Richard Hatch ones and some of Alec also that they were using as backer perks during the original yeah. crowdfunding after Prelude had released. And they also had begun selling them at their merch table and things like that. And there was never any discussion about um, compensation for them. That was not something I was looking for. I just wanted credit. I wanted when we had these on our website for it to say, you know, photo by like, how cool would that be? I thought that was a, a neat thing to be able to say, hey, see that cool photo that this person has for sale at their autograph table? Someone that well, I, mean, I remember how thrilled you were at a convention where Kate Vernon was signing. And there yeah. was a while where those actors all had their eight by tens uh, of their prelude photos that we had taken uh, at their tables for one yeah. of the options. And that would like, man, I remember how thrilled you were that, hey, she was, these actors were proud enough about being part of the production, uh, fan production, that they had them out there. And yep. now, again, none of these, and again, these are all professionals. They're fine. They don't, they've got their careers they wouldn't put one of those back on their table if you paid them. 
And that's that of its own accord. It's not just, hey, the people that were working on crew, look at the cast who no longer wants to be anywhere near. That, so that was I, the big tell was the fact that so many of these people that had never said a bad word about anything they had ever worked on. If it was like really terrible, really awful, they had a bad experience. These are people that do not speak ill or leave consummate projects. professionals. Consummate professionals, yes. Um, if you ever have the pleasure, Kate Vernon is magic and amazing, and I love her, like, still to this day. The fact that she and several of the other people that were involved with Prelude kind of all left the way they did and will not speak about it, except for Tony Todd, who does occasionally talk Say about it. really rude. You but cannot, rightfully you so. Up. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, that's kind of very telling, <laughs> just right there. I will say real quick, just because just just on a light fun note, I didn't realize that you guys did the photos that they sometimes had at their that the actors sometimes had at their tables. So real quick story from DragonCon 2015. My best friend Becca was obsessed with the 100 at the time, but very particularly obsessed with an actor named Richard Harmon. Mm -hmm. Richard Hatch was also at DragonCon 2015. And so my significant other at the time and I decided to play a joke on Becca where we went and got us, we were going to get a signed picture because we were both BSG fans and uh, among other things that Richard Hatch has been in. But so we went to Richard Hatch's table, amazing guy, as we've been talking about in the chat, we had a lengthy, I mean, like 20 minute, 30 minute conversation with him. And in the end, the photo that we bought wasn't a BSG one. We thought it was most hilarious to buy the Axonar photo because oh. neither one of us even even knew really I was like I think I had like a PR email about this yeah. once because I was writing for some websites at the time but you know it's him in like full makeup you can't even really tell it's him of course but so that was the photo that we bought and had him sign for my best friend and you know we brought it back we were like we we got to because all weekend we'd been joking like, yeah, Richard, Richard Hatch, Richard Hatch, Richard Hatch. You want you want to meet Richard Hatch? Not that she would have anything against him. She just had never watched BSG and was again, yeah. just obsessed with this other actor who had the same initials. But That's yeah, me. so anyway, she she did find it very hilarious. But I don't know, just just on a light note that there are good things sort of in a way that come from all we, of this. <laughs> we have um, we have a friend that is a photographer for Getty that often will be at conventions and take pictures of the talent at their table. And he has this really great one of like Richard holding up his Karn photo that I took. And it, it just, it's so cute and I love it. It makes me happy still and to this. This, this is where this would have been so great in that fans able to kind of scratch that I want to create some art and make a, a film, a fan film of a property that I love and get to work with wonderful professionals from industry, both on, in front of and behind the camera. That's where this could have gone so great. And instead it ended up being, because I mean, I saw like going to work at the Ticonderoga studio with Crowley and, and his crew, uh, when it was me and Rob and we were working on the, I can't remember what the the New York shoot, whatever happened with the footage from that. But that was such a great experience. And they are such a, a really professional team that they had up there in the camera and everybody. And now it's just kind of kiboshed. And it would have been a great experience. I would have loved, you know, Paul, had you been able to direct Axnar, all the people that would have gotten the experience and getting that sample, what it's like to be an industry and, and if they if something they want to continue on as a career, all that gets kiboshed with how 
things went south. It and really does. And things, yeah. It really does, you know, because um, our way of doing things at Meta, right? Come on in, right? Like, come stand next to me. I want you to see how we do it, you know? Come come be part of it. You want to yell action? Yell action, right? And I'll tell you, yell cut, right? People get such a thrill out of being part of this stuff. So I can tell you one thing that I think is an absolute shame, uh, exactly speaking to what you guys are saying about what was lost here. One of the things that I wanted to do, and I didn't, no Richard Hatch and I never met him, but I knew that there was a lot of love and affection for the guy. And um, everything I'd ever heard about Richard Hatch was that he was really pleasant and really sweet. It reminds me of how people are at conventions, right? I can tell you someone else who I know, you know, having run into him loads and loads of times at loads of conventions, who's like the nicest guy is Mr. T. And every time that you go to a convention and you see a crowd gerbils congregating and you hear this like loud, you're like, that's, that's T. You know it. And you go down and he's like so pleasant and really kind. And he's bringing people up. He's making people who are nervous. He's making them feel good. Right. So I said to Alec Peters at one point, you know, it seems like because there was a question of, of, of the fact, how did the continuity work? that this was supposedly one set of three interviews that all took place about the Battle of Axanar. And now suddenly we weren't going to be able to do any interviews with Richard Hatch because he had passed away, right? And I said, you know what? i got a great idea. Give me all the footage that we have that hasn't actually been used yet, anything that got struck from the first one. Right. And I'm going to repurpose it so the question will actually make it seem as though Richard can live in, in the other two films. So we took all the footage that yeah. couldn't be used. We rewrote and repurposed a question that could go to him and then the context of his answer which was from footage that was never used would actually so that richard hatch had a chance to to live that's great in the version that i was making which i think everybody would have absolutely adored because everybody seems to really adore this guy and something as simple as that just got thrown away because of awful horrible behavior and I think it's such a shame. When I first came into this whole situation, this is what I remember very clearly. I talked to a couple of people who, you know, were sort of commiserating with me. Well, you now you're on the business end of Alec Peters. And I said, yeah, that's no fun. And what I learned right at that moment was that this is a franchise that people just love. And he had sucked the love out of this franchise for so many people. So many people were sad. They were a big fan of Star Trek. And now when they thought of Star Trek, they were like, ugh. Axanar. And I'm like, man, you're destroying someone's love for this stuff. You know, what a shame. With regards to Richard Hatch, one thing I'll say about him is he's one of the, the rare souls that had the ability that any individual that got in front of them for 30 seconds or more, he would make them feel like they're the most important person in the world at that moment, that he would give them their full focus. They would, people that got to meet him more than a couple of times, they would feel like, you know, th that he's a friend. And I will say to the point that Alec is like, I knew uh, Richard better than all of you, blah, 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 blah. It's Granny, uh, Alec had been taking the acting classes from Richard and uh, for a while, and Richard would absolutely make you feel like you were absolutely special to him. And he would do that whether it's a, a little kid coming to his table for the first time, someone he's worked with a while, anybody else. And that that connection. So I'm sure that when Alec talks about how he was so very close to Richard, I'm sure he feels that very honestly, because that's what Richard made everybody feel like. There's always going to be that special person. I wish more people were out there like it. Even though we've gotten just a little bit off topic, but yeah, for yeah. all the, for all, no, but for all the best reasons, because I do think that there are positive things 
that can be talked about from this. I mean, I'll be completely honest. I got pulled into this completely against my will and I've still met some great people because of it. I mean, obviously Paul, like I probably never would have met and been like actually good friends going to dinner and stuff with Paul. Uh, I have no idea how I would have, how I would have met Paul if it weren't for all of this. I, I mean, I knew both you and both Mab and Bill, I knew you guys outside of this before this, whatever, you know, so there's all of that. But one of the things just to kind of pull it back to what we were talking about in regards to the psychology of the situation and how once you have walked away from the project, you seem to be fair game, for, at least in most people's cases, whether it happens immediately or many years later, apparently, you and your personal life and everything seem to be fair game for Alec and his flying monkeys, as I like to call them, to just harass and demean and debase on social media, on the Axonar blog. I had one of his people attempt to dox me by revealing what they thought was my full name on a website back right before we did the first Toxic Fandom webcast. And the funny thing was that webcast, I think there was very little mention at all of Axanar or Alec Peters in it. I believe I brought it up at the very end only because this person had seen my announcements about this assume about the original Toxic Fandom webcast in 2022, assumed it was going to be all about Alec and Axanar and went on the attack. And I think that's the only reason it was mentioned at all in that webcast. Uh, I could, I, the, the notes that I have are like 12, 13 pages long, and there's no mention of it in the notes, etc. But now all that said, because once you have gone against Alec and or gotten yourself back into is his limelight, even if you haven't been involved in things in years. <laughs> Sorry, guys. The anatomy and evolution of the lies that he tells about people, not just us, but others as well, is it's scary. It's very Trump-like. One of the things that Paul and I, and I know we talked a little bit about this in our planning for this show, all, all four of us, I mean, is the idea of trying lies on for size. And Paul, you had a really funny, you had a, you had a funny way of explaining it. I know you, you use grasshoppers originally. I don't care what you use, but I, I feel like our viewers yep. need to hear this because I was dying about this. Well, it, it works like this, right? It works like this. What I think people with narcissistic tendencies do and you know you're talking about narcissistic tendencies on steroids we interviewed a couple of clinical psychologists for our documentary so far to talk about like issues of, you know one of them is an absolute expert in narcissism to talk about like how does this develop like how does a narcissistic person you know like create a lie try it out and so it was something that was actually made my producer scott and i kind of scratch our nose and go wait a minute we you know we've been through this and this is what would basically happen. I'll use the grasshoppers uh, thing for you, Tara, that we were talking about the other day as an example. We would be working on the thing, you know, be working on the project, uh, just trying to get it together or something. And all of a sudden, Alec Peters would make a really non sequitur statement that had nothing to do with anything. So you might, you know, when we're saying, well, you know, we need to make sure that if we're going to get that plant painted, that the paint is looks really good. And all of a sudden he would make some comment and go like, well, you know, grasshoppers are really blah, blah, blah. And we go like, what on earth did he bring up that for? That's, that means nothing in the context of what we're doing. I don't understand like why he would have said the word grasshoppers and we suddenly talk about grasshoppers. And that's just a, a kind of a silly example. He didn't actually talk about grasshoppers, but he bring up something that made no sense. 
four, five, six weeks later, we'd be sitting and talking and working on what we were doing. And he would say, do you remember that time when you agreed with me that grasshoppers, blah, blah, blah. And we'd say, no, 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 hang on a second. We never agreed with you about what you said. You said it. We didn't understand why you brought it up. And all of a sudden, you're bringing it back weeks later and saying, yeah, 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 we all agreed about that thing when I mentioned it. That's not what happened. And I thought that was really an odd kind of behavior from him when we were working with him. And we noticed it one, two, three, four, five times. We realized, hang on a minute, that's really weird, right? He seems to have this thing where he brings stuff up and then tries to qualify them later. But it's not like we're not all grown adults. So it's not like we couldn't see through it because it felt like a very arrested development type of thing to do, you know, like a really childish kind of thing. You know, I, hey, you said I could have ice cream not last week. No, I didn't. You asked me for an ice cream last week. I've got two kids. I know how this works, right? All right. Now, when you take a look at where it gets kind of dangerous and where it gets really bad is the sort of way that I've learned to describe it is the evolution of a lie, right? So let's take a look at a lie and see how it evolves. One of the lies that was, and, and, and it's very weird because, you know, the idea that someone would just flat out lie to be the foundation for something that they can do a lot longer is really fascinating to me, but it's also pretty dangerous when you're on the receiving end of it. So I'm gonna give you one that I think is, is pretty fascinating. Sean O'Halloran and, and Alec Peters had a interaction at DragonCon where Sean went off to go and challenge Alec Peters for being kind of mean to his kid, right, at Star Trek Las Vegas. So, I mean, basically, you know, Sean's little boy was running around in a duck mask. And when he ran around in a duck mask, he went too close to Alec's, Alec's table and Alec yelled at him. And the thing about it was that the little little boy was actually interrupting a live stream that Alec was doing from the show floor that he was not allowed to do by the rules of the show, right? So Sean gets upset and he, he comes into Atlanta and he basically is helping us out at our table. He's sort of like telling people about the documentary that we're doing. And at some point, Sean decides to go back downstairs and sort of challenge Alec, right? And say, listen, man, you don't like it when someone gets in your face. You're going to yell at my kid. And he, and he basically sang happy birthday to him. Now, the police cam, the footage, everything tells us exactly what happened. And that includes the legal filings. Like that incident is pretty easy to understand what happened. Sean goes down, sings him happy birthday, gets upset. Alec gets upset and slaps the phone out of uh, Sean O'Halloran's hand, right? Okay, that happened. Sean goes to get his property back, shoves the table aside. You can see it all on video. And then you can see the police cam of what happened. Then you can see what happens in the legal filings. You can even see on the police cam that the, the cop who is basically ejecting Alec Peters from the show says to him, you're ejected. We're not charging that guy with anything because you took his property unlawfully. Like he says it on the police video. And then when you see the filing, you see that Alec Peters was charged with simple assault for that. That's what happened. That's the charge. Now, his contention is that Sean O'Halloran was convicted of stalking. But there is no such conviction. There's no, so he wants it to be true that Sean O'Halloran was convicted of stalking. So he takes a thing where there's a, a restraining order and he's brought out the restraining order. So, you know, what's the judge going to do? He's going to say, you two separate. You're going to say to both of them, don't you go near each other. It's fair enough. That isn't an admission by the judge or even a charge of stalking, let alone a conviction of stalking, because that's a completely different thing. Now, when you take that lie and you say, okay, now Alec Peters has stated overtly that Sean O'Halloran was convicted of stalking, 
in the last few days, because after three years, I've never said a single word about this thing or barely said anything, right? After three years, I finally speak up and it is blowing his face up. He's just freaking out that I finally decided to say something. So all of the ad hominem things kind of escalate. And what's escalated is he's now made the overt statement that I sent this guy. I sent this guy to go and attack him so that we could get footage to use in the documentary. Now, there are two things that are wrong with that. Number one, people do know me, right? Like people actually know me and people are there. And so the reason that sometimes I don't really get that concerned about this disparagement is people know me, right? Like every single person that knows me goes, yeah, that, that didn't happen, right? There's no way because everyone knows. But the, the other side of it is this, that when you say that with absolute qualification, Paul Jenkins did this thing, that is preternaturally stupid. In terms of a legal sense, if you're going to say that thing, you better be able to back that up in a courtroom, mate. And you can't. You can't back it up in a court. Yeah, here's what actually happened. I'm minding my own business at the table, and two cops show up with Sean Haller, and he looks sheepish, and he goes, I'm kind of fucked up. And I was like, what happened? So he's getting his stuff, and he's like, sorry, man. And that was what happened, right? Like, I didn't know anything about it. I wouldn't have known anything about it. I think the craziest part of it is, you know, I, I ha I'm the person who's handed their materials in for discovery. So I hand in these interactions that I have with Sean in discovery, at which point, presumably, Alec Peters learns that there's no conversation between Sean and I about anything to do with any of this. I find out right after it happens. And so because he's disappointed that I didn't do anything to do with this and he needs it to prove his case, here come all of these accusations that he knows are not true. He absolutely knows it. And I think that speaks to the psychology of people that need something. They desperately need for say, you know, I need for Paul Jenkins to have been uh, behind a plot to embarrass me. Uh, uh, yeah, you need that. The problem is it didn't happen and it never will. And so when you look at all of these things, whether it be the comparison of me and Rob and Christian with this same scripted language that says we never did any work, we didn't do any work in post-production, we stole from the production, all these kind of things, those are things that he would like to be true. And the problem is when they're not true, he has to find a way to make them true. And I think that's a real psychological difficulty right there. That is a, that's a problem because what it does is it, it, it really damages people's reputations. It really goes, you know, anyone that knows me knows that didn't happen. But it's not like my reputation isn't being attacked, no matter how good my reputation is with everybody, right? Well, and that's always the problem. Sorry, there's always the problem that happens when when things like this happen at an event. For example, it's like when he went and singing happy birthday and all that kind of you're putting up, you're compelling an event producer and their staff and their volunteers to have to deal with a situation that is patently unfair. We got a number of people here, they're all event producers, have put on events for years and stuff like that. And there's shit that you just don't do. You want to go have a fight out in the street great have fun but to take it into an exhibitor hall or down to a thing and what sean did with on his side utterly do not approve i mean there's plenty of times to get up go and run into alec do it somewhere else not where to paul's point is like you're gonna have producers for other events that might love to have paul in paul uh, in as a guest but he's heard this thing and is it real or not i don't know just to be on the safe side we're just gonna say no and that suddenly becomes impactful now, I want, to, I want to speak to this because there's another thing that's part of this. And I think this actually speaks to the hubris, Marianne, that you were talking about a little bit earlier on. You were sort of saying something about hubris, right? Here's the thing. He, he, <laughs> before that show, I believe it was before that show, he had written to the organizers of DragonCon to explain to them that he had four stalkers. 
and that I was one of them. Now, this is because he's in a lawsuit with me, right? And I know that any of my friends who might ever see this would go like, wow, Jenkins has really taken off. You know, one minute he's nice, next minute he's a stalker, right? But, you know, basically he wrote to DragonCon to tell them that I was a stalker and that he was in fear. And the problem is what he didn't realize, and this is going to be a big problem for him. It's, it's been a problem for him all the way down the line. Like I said, people know me. And the problem is the owner of DragonCon knows me personally. I have been going to DragonCon and supporting them and helping them build their tracks for probably 33 years, maybe longer. So Pat writes to me and says, who the hell is this guy? Like most people do. Who is this guy? And I'm like, oh God, not that guy. Right. So now Pat and I have this like interaction. Unbeknownst to Alec Peters, Pat and I are like just chatting, going like, what? Yeah. And I say like, yeah, this guy, is, there's problems. So Pat basically writes to Alec Peters and says, uh, yeah, well, you can't come to the show then because uh, Paul Jenkins is a, is a guest. What, what Alec didn't understand was that I have been a guest of honor at DragonCon, right? So he's got a bit of a problem trying to like attack my credibility with someone who's a longtime 33-year friend. But he tries it anyway because he, he's so small inside his own world that he doesn't realize other people are slightly bigger in their worlds, right? He just doesn't assume that anyone actually has the credibility. And so Pat basically told him, you can't come to DragonCon. And he said, actually, change my mind. Paul Jenkins is not a stalker. Immediately, like that, because reality changes the moment that you need it to if you have narcissistic tendencies without even thinking. And so I think that, you know, when you look at this, I have always found with this like toxic fan type behavior where it's like, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this to be true, that it's all transactional, that it changes at a moment's notice depending on what it is that they need. And so when you take a look at the evolution of a lie, I want to give one more example because I think it's worth it, right? He's recently, <laughs> he's recently been saying, because he escalated his original lie. When I first left the production, he decided to try a lie on for science. He told my CEO, Sarah Boyd, that I had said something to his girlfriend, that I had told her to break up with him, right? Never happened, was never going to happen. Just wasn't going to happen. Sarah, of course, knows me. And one of the reasons why she would laugh her face off is because she is a female CEO in my company, which is part of what our charter is. She knows me. And so she laughed and when it didn't happen, she told me about it and we laughed. But I shouldn't have laughed because it was being set up like that non sequitur thing I told you right. about grasshoppers. It was a setup. After a while, it was Paul said something inappropriate to my girlfriend. Then it's Paul was inappropriate with my girlfriend. Now, any of us understand what that coded language is supposed to mean, right? Paul was inappropriate with my girlfriend. I don't think so. Paul behaved inappropriately towards my girlfriend. And so last week when he lost his temper because I finally spoke up, he decided to print Paul Jenkins was fired for inappropriate behavior towards women. Right? So he's gone from zero to 60 with one lie. He set up the lie and then he's just brought it all the way through to try to attack somebody's credibility, which is just nailed on defamation. So when you see these people and they are acting this way, Never forget that these lies are all part of this like transactional behavior that they do where they want a thing to be true because they think it serves them. And so all you have to do is to take a look at the demeanor and behavior. And, and uh, one last thing I want to say on this, in his deposition, we asked him, who would say you're of good character? Who, who, who would say that you're of good character? That's what my attorney asked him. It took him like two pages of deposition transcript, like literally two and a half minutes to try and come up with five people who could say he was of good character. All of them were his troll hunters, every single one. 
ask me the same question, my answer would be everybody who's ever met me, right? Like that's easy. You know what you want to do? Go on my Facebook page to see the level of support I've got and the things that are being said about me by fellow creators because they know who I am. Right. So when you see this like awful, toxic, difficult behavior and, and you know, I think I think he probably should be embarrassed by the fact that it took him five minutes to come up with five people or two minutes to come up with five people. That's a long time. I can tell you everyone that ever met me would say I was a good character. That's a big difference. And so I think that we have to like take a look at this thing in context and say these lies, this bullshit, all of this stuff that happens to us that we're 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 facing this constant barrage of crap. It's not real. It's manufactured. And that's right. the problem. Right. It's manufactured for somebody's intent. You know, I think. Well, that, and, and that is uh, the problem that sorry, Bill, give me just I, what yes. I want to say is that is the problem that it is manufactured with intent and whether it's Alec or Crystal saying things or both of them who knows you know coming up with things together posting it on each other's profiles i don't know honestly you know I, again bill and marianne i don't want you guys to talk about anything that you're uncomfortable with but this is something that i think we've had the three of us as friends before this had had very little conversation about and then it just kind of came to the forefront um and i i don't want to bring up too many other people because I don't want I don't want to say anything that that somebody doesn't want me to say but there's another person Emmett who his wife had also previously been dragged into this in the weirdest way like Crystal a person who's never met his wife was saying things like Emmett's wife tries to ruin people's lives and stuff like that thankfully the kibosh was put on that real quick and hopefully yeah, Emmett's wife will never come up again but in this case it became you know the second and it wasn't, you know, the, the thing is, it wasn't even you speaking up, Bill. You know, it really pissed Alec off. It was Marianne, the woman speaking up. And yeah. that's something that I also have no, no. kudos amounts of experience with. Mm -hmm. But because we're on this and this is, uh, I don't know, I, like I, evolution of a lie. I don't know if it's there quite yet for you guys, but maybe we can put the kibosh on it because it is very clear that both of you were dragged into this because of a comment that was made that they did not like. And, and I'm going to leave this to you guys to say what you two are comfortable with saying. I don't, again, I don't want you guys to feel like you have to discuss anything that's uncomfortable for you. But the attacks on both of you recently were just a little bit over the top. And, and I can't say completely out of the blue because, oh, my God, you dared say a word, Marianne. Yeah. You specifically. Let's be real. How dare I? What's funny to me, the, the thing that's the most funny about this to me is that I have not been quiet about this. I have posted numerous times about personal problems that Bill and I had with this production with Alec himself. It just took me sharing the GoFundMe that really brought it all up again. I made some mentions about experiences I had had personally with Alec and things that I had personally seen that I will not go into detail here and things that had been confirmed to me by three separate sources that I will not name because contrary to popular comment, I do have journalistic integrity. Thank you very much. And it it's that thing where I've never been quiet. I've never once been quiet about this. I've never hidden my disdain for these people and what they've done. But it took me sharing the GoFundMe on my personal Facebook page for them to come after me again. And I don't know what exactly 
caused that, but it was just kind of baffling. Like, really? Now? Now you're mad that I'm saying something? I don't, I don't understand. There are many things that were said in a post that I don't necessarily want to give any kind of credit to because none of it's true. I can go through it point by point and say, nope, 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 this was you, nope. But I, I don't necessarily want to do that because there's a difference between standing up to a bully and perpetuating the negativity that they're trying to have be their bread and butter. And I personally don't have time for that fucking shit. Thank you very much. And I'm really, I, I'm disappointed with all the amazing things that they talk shit about so many other people. The best thing that Crystal could come up with for me is that the, what was towards the end is like, yes, I broke embargo early on Richard Hatch's obituary when he passed. Heard about it. I was heartbroken. I was crushed. I should have sat on it a bit longer. I didn't. Meh. But for her to say to the, uh, in the end of her, her post, it's like, thank you for that. I'm like, passive aggressive much? But then a little her sitting there wearing her little infinity collar and being a nice little subby to, uh, to Alec. Hey, and... hey, hey, what do we not do? Right, we is, do not yeah. kink shame. We oh, kink no, ask like, why. I, I, I'm not. I'm the last person that's going to kink shame under that side. But it's more like it's not like she's doing this or an accord because from time to time when after Diana and he's there you now he's with Crystal, I'd keep asking Marianne and others like, who's he with now? Cause she doesn't even blip on the radar and it's just not, I just don't, the worst thing for them is like, I just really don't care. Now, granted in their comment, I'll also make the comment about, she alluded to a conversation between me and Mab where I was yelling and very unhappy. I was not, you know, actually Mab, you couldn't embellish, but it was a conversation about the funeral about Richard's memorial, actually, because so again, the family was still the family was upset because I had broken, understandably upset that yeah. I had broken embargo early. I absolutely and, did. Uh, to to back all of this up, um, Bill and I were very close with Richard. He was a friend of our family. He met my son, my father. He had been to our house. Like he he was a big part of our our little family, for lack of a better term. And we we were very affected by his sudden illness and his passing and bill and i being in the media and article writers journalists things like that bill did publish an article talking about richard's passing before he was given the go-ahead by richard's family who we were in contact with at the time and this was something that i was not aware of until i was told it had happened which was very difficult for me as bill's editor at the time that's still something that we disagree on somewhat. And because Bill had posted this and immediately took it down once he was contacted and told to do so, Bill was uninvited from a memorial service that was being held for Richard. Alec made sure that I could go. And I don't know um, what all went into that, but he he made sure that I, I could be there. And that was something that I'm still very, very thankful for because Richard was a big part of our lives. He was very special to us and it was important that one of us be there. The thing that Crystal alludes to in her message about hearing Bill yelling and screaming at me on a phone call. For taking a day off. Taking a day off from work, which is silly because I work remotely and can do so anywhere. They were very nice and offered to host me I was up in San Francisco at the time. They said that I could come stay with them and go with them to the memorial service. And I took them up on the offer. And the phone call was Bill being very upset that he wasn't there, that he wasn't allowed to be there. And he was very honest about the fact that, yeah, I did this. I fucked this up. This is my fault. But that doesn't mean he wasn't 
any less upset. And when Bill gets into something, he can get loud, as we all can. And that's what the phone call was that she's talking about. And it's like, it has nothing to do with any kind of relationship issue between he and I at the time. It was because he wasn't there. And can I her, can I can I just yeah. weigh in on one thing because yeah, I had I've never known any of this stuff right like this is probably the first time I learned about this was like two days ago when I see the post right yeah so if you look at it from the perspective of someone that has that has no knowledge it shows exactly what they try to do and I know better because I know them and I know what they try to do remember I'm a victim on one end of the beginning of a lie that became Paul Jenkins was fired for inappropriate behavior towards me. It's hard to say it with straight face every time I say it. Right. But what that looked like was Bill is abusive. He's an abusive man. Yeah. Yeah. And and that, that is, that is carefully chosen language, carefully juxtaposed against a thing. So if I didn't know any better, I'd be like, oh, that guy's a bit mean to her. And he's, he's a bit abusive. That's exactly what it looks like. And that's exactly what's intended. I will tell you, in my experience, there have been two or three times where Alec Peters has sort of vaguely said, well, Paul Jenkins, you know, who will rid me of this troublesome priest? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's right. dangerous shit. Right. It is. Be it a shame is. If something, it'd be a shame if something happened, wouldn't it? Right. That's dangerous. And right. I see that stuff in my industry all the time. And that's what I want to put a stop to. We have to put a, t- a stop to this type of toxic behavior. We're in the we're in the drinking phase of our. <laughs> you know, I went I went and let my cat out a minute ago, and then I got myself a, a cider. So yeah, we, we've hit that point, Tara. Yeah, oh, I've been there. I'm making myself what is called a fight claw. It's where I had a vodka soda drink that was like more than halfway gone and I poured a white claw into it. So it's called a fight claw. We do not talk about fight claw. And yeah, and no, let's let me be very clear. This is not a threat about wanting to fight with anybody. Okay. Yeah. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to start a fight with anybody. This is just a funny thing that my friends and I yeah. say. Well, again, it's the whole thing. What you just pointed out is like if someone doesn't know someone in the midst of everything else and they hear, well, maybe that person's abusive or angry or violent or something like that, then just on hedging the bets, it comes in, you preset someone for a negative expectation of someone. And that's, you know, that's really where it is because many of us rely in in industries, in fandoms and whatnot that are based, all we have is our reputation. All we have is reputation and our trust in our word. And when something comes like that, they're trying to to basically, there's nothing but not scorched earth with them. Yeah, well, the good news for me, I always feel, is yeah. that, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. All I have is my reputation. Well, I know what my reputation is, right? Yeah. My reputation is stellar with everybody that I know. And so it's a little bit like having a fight with, you know, a one-armed midget, right? <laughs> good luck. Good luck with this, right? You want to try that? Good luck, because all that's going to happen is everybody's going to see who you are when you bear your ass. So good luck. Yeah, and I I kind of think that that's I I honestly think the four of us here are very lucky because we all have our own circles. I mean, obviously, Bill and Marianne, you guys had more of an inner circle with Alec 
than oh, for sure than I ever did because I've literally never met the man or Crystal in person. But you guys had more of an inner circle from way back because of Battlestar Galactica stuff and of course your early work on Axanar than Paul and I have or did. But uh, unfortunately for you guys, I guess maybe or maybe actually, like I said earlier, maybe fortunately for you, because I do think that that's a part of why you guys kind of were off his radar. But all of that said, before we move on as as we've been talking about the evolution of a lie one thing i want to mention and i don't know how much we want to talk about this go into detail about this whatever is accusations as confessions the idea of accusing somebody with zero knowledge or proof honestly because i i can say for a fact they have zero knowledge or proof of like literally anything about my life unless there's like some person from my way far away past that they've somehow gotten in touch with I, I that, that they might have found out like, oh, I don't know, like, I was in a live in relationship with somebody for a million years. And then we broke up. Oh, no, like, I don't know, like, you know, there, there might be something that they know somehow by some weird way. But I've had no close mutual friends with these people, but they really love to accuse me of things. And I think also, you know, with you guys recently, these random accusations that we do not need to detail by any means, but with, again, with Paul as well, the many lies they've told about Paul, it is a lot of, I, you know, I'm no psychologist. I am not uh, saying anybody is one thing or another, but that is a, that is a thing that a certain type of person does is I've done a thing. So I'm going to accuse this person of doing mm -hmm. the thing. And of my, I'll be honest, not best moments was not, not the not the situation as a whole. But when Crystal posted a picture of Dean and I on her wall, like on her own personal Facebook wall in the summer of 2021. It was a picture from a group a fleet dinner. I, I don't think it was even called a colonial fleet. It was a BSG fan group, whatever. It was a group fleet dinner in 2019 at Dragon Con. I was there with my two roommates and and who are also two of my best friends, two of my Dragon Con roommates. I mean, I was sitting next to Dean in the sense that I was at a square or rectangular table and he was, and I was at the edge of that table and he was at, the end-ish, as, as much as you can say that, of a round table next to me, we were sitting about two feet apart and I leaned in. And from the picture, I'm fairly certain I'm looking at something on his phone and like, y'all, my shoulder is brushing his, my shoulder is brushing his shoulder as I lean in to look at his phone. <sighs> so uh, Alec like stood on a chair or something. I don't even know. The picture is weird as fuck. I like, I wish I had like the original version of it, but all I have is like the thing that was posted in comments somewhere. But this was, this has been bandied about as proof that Dean and I were like in an affair, having a relationship, etc. And that's not something I am getting into. It's first of all, if, it's none of anybody's fucking business how my relationship with Dean started, but no, we weren't actually in a relationship until like later in 2019, months after <laughs> uh, he had to file for separation slash divorce from his now ex-wife. And I, that is not my story to tell. It was bad and it was not bad on Dean's end. It was bad on her end. So, so this picture Crystal posts on her wall as proof that 
some sort of like nefarious thing was happening. And a friend of mine who is still mutual friends with her before I had like apparently realized there were, I still had a few, you know, mutual friends with them was like, what is happening here? Why is there a picture of you on this person's Facebook post? So told me about it. And I went there and I started a fight with Crystal on her own post. And one of the things I brought up was the fact that her relationship with Alec began before his relationship with Diana ended. And I actually walked my comment back because in the end, I was like, you know what? It doesn't even fucking matter. But when it comes down to it, accusations as confessions. Mm-hmm. And I don't even, the thing is, I don't know if they believe that everybody does the thing because they do the thing or mm-hmm. if it's just, oh my God, I did this terrible thing. I've got a great idea. Let me accuse this person of doing the same terrible I think, thing. I think, it's, I think it's both of those things, Tara. I think it is. I think it's like, I did a thing, therefore I better quickly jump on top of it before it happens, right? Um, good example. I did a thing. I want to prove a point. I'm going to write to the owners of DragonCon and try and tell them that Paul Jenkins is a stalker. And then I'm going to find out that Paul Jenkins is a lifetime friend of these people. Then I'm going to say, actually, he's not a stalker. The idea being is it's all completely transactional. It's a transaction. It just goes, you did this. If it's proved that you didn't do it, okay, well, then I'll just pivot to something else. Right? It doesn't matter. Right? None of this matters because even when caught in that lie, it doesn't matter. It just pivots to the next one. And I think that's a typical behavior. So, yes, there are two rules of narcissism, right? Number one, um, the accusation of a narcissist is always a confession. Number two, if you really want to piss off a narcissist, you really want to piss them off, Accuse them of the thing that they actually did. And right. as, you, well, and, as you can and, see, this week has been quite interesting. So I wonder what that means. Well, and and, and to be honest, like from, from my point of view, what I said when I said like, this is not one of my prouder moments. It was not one of my prouder moments that I threw in something. And like, honestly, I don't know why I care, but I guess maybe it's because I'm not a fucking terrible person. But I have no literal proof of their their relationship history. I should not have thrown their their relationship history, what I know of it, into even even a fucking stupid Facebook comment fight. Because the thing is, I can I can back myself without throwing your dirty laundry at you, right? right. I don't need to throw your dirty laundry at you because my well, laundry is clean, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's one of the things that they try and do is sometimes they'll get their people spun up to do something, but other times they will spin up your defenders too, right? And it ends up, you know, they can end up motivating people to take actions that ends up putting you in a bad light or us in a bad light because our defenders then are, are coming out. It's like, oh, they're sending the people off to whatever's. And in the end, this is not about someone's relationship or who they did do or didn't do or where they fucked them or anything else like that. This is all a question about how everybody got involved with something that seemed like a really great, passionate thing around mm-hmm. making art and celebrating a fandom. And then one, someone got overly wrapped up because of the amount of money that was running around and that exposed some underlying issues. And from there, the whole thing went to a, if you leave there, you know, the only way, way to, to exit the project is death. It's like trying to leave a cult. It's like, and it, all the patterning that between what Alec does and how he works with his people to make sure that they do things to please him. And that's where those whole, all those lines, Paul, that you commented about is like, wouldn't it be a shame if something happened? That way, if one of them does take it up, he can sit there and go, oh, well, I never told them to, although he knows darn well what's happening with the whole mix. And the same thing about saying bad things about people. Hey, Paul, he could go tell, talk shit to DragonCon about you. Um, 
yeah, it's no fuss on him, but it might hurt. Yeah, and right. so they just do it out of passion as opposed to saying it's like, hey, we tried to do a thing. It didn't work out. That's a bummer. Handshake. Move on. Do this. There's an accusation from there's an accusation that's confession. You know, we offered you a fair settlement agreement and you chose not to take it. You didn't offer me a fair settlement agreement. You offered to take my the stuff that I've written, tell us to get lost after we've done everything for free. You basically decided to like trample over us, yell about me online for the two months before anybody knew that we'd left the project. You did all of those things. And then you decided to sue me for defamation because you were using my likeness on your website to try and get people to raise money from people. You wouldn't take down my likeness. We finally issued a press release to say, Basically, we are not part of this thing. And then you sued me for defamation. There's this whole thing that goes on, right? I keep coming back to this whole thing. Guys, it doesn't matter because you can speculate on any of the things that are said, but they're always a transaction, right? It's transactional. So here's a great example. I was sued and my company was sued for defamation for clarifying that we were not part of a project that kept my likeness up on its website to try to raise money when we had been gone for two months, right? So we get sued for defamation. He, because of the way that he works in in basically messing around in, in the legal forum, there was one amended complaint, two amended complaints, three amended complaints, four amended complaints. That means he amended his complaint four times, which frankly is misconduct. And only in the fourth one, 13 months after he sued us, did he add the charge of copyright fraud because he needed to at that point, because he wanted to at that point. He didn't charge it at the beginning. He just thought of it halfway through the process and went, let me add that one in because it will give me what I want. It's always transactional. And it's never an exception either. It's only transactional. So anything that you see or hear is a transactional, there's a reason for it. It's that they want something and they're going to try and get something by doing this thing. And it doesn't matter what they do. Well, and I think before we go on to a couple other things, one thing I wanted to mention is the idea of this like Faustian agreement, Faustian pact, however you want to word it, because we saw it actually very recently. And I maybe you and Rob, Robert, my Burnett are going to talk about this on Tuesday. So I do not want to get into this. But where a message that RMB, you know, in anger at the people who he believed were being detrimental toward the making of Axanar, this thing that he was involved in and really cared about, in, in, in anger at those people, he made a really terrible comment. Mm -hmm. about one of these detractors. I'm not going to say who it was. That's not. This is not my business. I don't want to get into a discussion about this. But this is a screenshot that Alec has apparently held on to for six years or so. And he posted it the other day. Like, ha ha. I, like, I don't even know. Like, like what's what is a dumb, evil, like, give me an evil cartoon villain. Like, Dr. Uh, like, like, we got, uh, got a couple of Yeah. Or oh, Dick Dastardly. Dick Dastardly. Yeah. Like, yeah. just a really dumb evil or maybe not maybe not like like attempting to be evil and very dumb cartoon villain alec is like ha ha well guess what it led to it led to an apology and a, and a discussion between these two people who had already buried the hatchet anyway and the thing about that is that now all of those flying monkeys as i like to call them minions as they've also been referred to i think they call themselves as you have said several times paul the troll hunters yep. uh, i think also there's been the axamarines thrown around a little bit all of those people now know that anything horrible they have said about anybody on the other side of things could be used against them 
I don't know. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, up to six years later, let's be real, it could be more. Yep. And these paragons of virtue that are like, oh my God, this person said that about somebody else, right? Let me print it. Gotcha. And all it did was draw those people closer together, right? Because of course it did. Because good people understand how to deal with this bad stuff, right? That's what I think about bringing that stuff, you know, with, with Marianne and, and Bill. Bringing that stuff up to the fore, most people just go like, Okay, what else have you got? Because <laughs> we don't care, right? We kind of care because it's unpleasant to see. But most of us are just like, I got nothing to hide. I don't care about that. Now, by the same token, I know that I've seen any number of things about me and my wife and, you know, like uh, about her pain condition, comments about whether or not she's faking it, comments about whether or not I'm, I'm using her to get sympathy, right? <laughs> it is say anything and see if any of it sticks. The good news is it doesn't really, you know, because I don't do anger. It doesn't really make me angry, but it certainly makes me disappointed that human beings can do any of this kind of stuff. I think it's a real disappointment that revolving around something that, you know, people should love, which is Star Trek fandom. This shouldn't be the way because Star Trek was never about any, Star Trek might be the opposite of any of this type of behavior. And I think that's the bit that's the real shame is that yeah. you're doing it in this forum. Well, and also the real shame is that there are people who are so nasty. And to be honest, yes, there's some on this side of things, too. The anti-Alex side things, too, who take it too far. I'm not going to go into detail about that. But I do believe, I do agree that there are some people who take it too far. The difference is, do they take it as far as the people on his side do? I don't know. But they have this, you know, their obsession with attacking other people's personal situations, personal relationships in response to anything negative that may or may not be said about them is over the top. Additionally, Alex weaponization of the legal and judicial system, which obviously you are experiencing firsthand, Paul and Dean, my husband has experienced and funny, funny story. Ha ha. The whole reason I joined Axa Monitor at the very end of 2020 in the first place, and you know, also did not like hardly say anything in there at all uh, for months and months and months, but you know, whatever. Uh, the whole reason I joined it was because Alex sued Dean in the wrong jurisdiction. On so purpose. like on purpose, right. So Alex weaponization of our honestly not great legal and judicial system is just a macro of his weaponization of social media and of his reach, particularly within the Star Trek fandom, which I still am like, sh to be honest, every day I'm shocked he still has any reach in any fandom. Because like you, you could literally look at the public things that he has said online. And, and I, as somebody who came into this with next to no knowledge and obviously later was dragged into it full force but like at, at the first when i first became friends with dean i'm looking at this and being like yo this guy is messed up what is wrong with him okay i would not have trusted this dude as far as i could throw my cat but you have never thrown a cat <laughs> exactly exactly that's the point i would never throw my cat and that's as far as i would trust Alec Peters, just by the like bare minimum of stuff I found about him online. And he unfortunately, again, like I said, still has this reach, at least some reach within fandom, Star Trek fandom, particularly, although it's a it's a shrinking sect of old white men, as far as I can tell. <laughs> there might be some women in there, but uh, outside of Crystal, maybe I'm pretty sure everybody is over the age of 50. I don't know how old she is, but well, I, can I can I just comment on that for one second before you guys get into it? It reminds me of after 9/11, right? 
right? And America kind of reasonably or unreasonably decided to go and invade uh, Iraq and all of that. Here was Osama bin Laden. And as, as I think it was George Bush Jr. famously said, you know, before he started all of this, he was in charge of a country. Now he's in charge of a cave. That's about all that they've got. I mean, you know, sorry, but, you know, it's, it's like the same 12 people that yell about the same thing every other day. Sure, you might have a reach for, say, a mailing list that's got lots of people on it, okay? Fantastic. But does anybody read your emails? Probably not. They're probably sick of it at this point because there's no film, there's no nothing. You're reaching the same 12 people. So I could see, you know, when this, after three years of me not saying anything, like, you know, I probably did one interview and maybe, you know, one written interview, two, two YouTube interviews, right? Finally, I speak up finally they're going bonkers because fear is a big motivator, right? And so now with all this concern that they've got about what's going to happen, especially because we're able to show basically stuff that we've uncovered in the commission of, of the documentary, now everything's kind of going sideways. But understand, you know, that my reach is across the world to hundreds of creators that people respect who are friends of mine. I've got all of that on my side if I decide to speak up. I've got a country, you've got a cave. So go ahead, yell and scream and carry on. You're not going to get anywhere with it. All you're going to do is have people look at you and go, oh, my God, that's a really bad person. That's it. Yeah. But while his little cave of nastiness is certainly a shrinking one, he does still have some reach within fandom in general. Yeah. And he uses that reach to attempt to discredit people or ruin their lives. Mm -hmm. Right. And he has sadly, unfortunately ruined at least a couple lives and maybe mm -hmm. not for always, but certainly for a you know small amount of time, but he's caused people a lot of money. He's caused bankruptcies, et cetera, et cetera. And this kind of brings us back around to something I mentioned in the intro, which is fans creating cult like micro environments. In this case, I'll very micro environment within their fandoms and bill i know you wanted to wanted to touch on this a little bit well i mean it's the whole thing around kind of what i towards the beginning of this conversation the discussion that fandoms are supposed to celebrate a thing and not everyone's going to like the same stuff they're going to like things in different ways but this whole kind of weaponization of fandom and using it to browbeat whether it's creators whether it's other fandoms whether it's cosplayers picking on each other. And really that's what gives fandom and everything a bad name and makes creators want to step out of engaging with their fans. I mean, there is no entitlement that a casting director should really listen to all the fans' input first and then take, because the more you try to make everybody happy, the more everybody you piss off. Because it's just not, it's not have a vision, have your artistic thing, and move forward. And there's plenty of times where productions and, and jobs of all kinds where people just, it doesn't work out. It could be the personalities are clashing. It's just not working out. It could be the work process flow or persons that's not really good at that particular role. That's fine. Shake hands, move on. And that's what shows that someone has grace and can move on. And that not all of us is going to like, Hey, we thought, you know, we're all going to come together and make a thing. And we had different ideas of what color to paint the walls. That's fine. That doesn't make them a bad person. We just had a different vision. Very well said. And on that note, unless you guys have anything else to touch on, I have uh, I have to get into our, our questions that were submitted. Ooh, fun. This will be great. I love this. Do you, want do you want to text Alex see if he has any questions? No. Let's. <laughs> All right. Well, and now some questions from a uh, longtime viewer and frequent commentator, albeit in their own circles, Crystal Hubbard slash Alec Peters. Hey. Uh, first question, Paul. This one's for you. 
I'll take Paul Jenkins for $10. Paul, why did you lie about Noe knowing Carrie Ann Hunt before she was cast in the fan production of Axanar? Uh, so that that's that's like wrong on some. Actually, that pretty much highlights uh, a lack of understanding about how productions work. So Carrie Ann is a great actress. She lives here in Atlanta. I've actually worked with her a couple of times. And when the casting sessions were about to happen or were going on for Axanar, the, the October shoot that we did, we got a few people in to read for the character of Korax. And Korax is like this otherworldly kind of alien figure. And I, having worked with Carrie Ann before, knew because she does a lot of like fairy and otherworldly kind of characters that um, she would probably be pretty good to read for that role. And lo and behold, she uh, was good for that role. And so we cast her in that role. Now that is just like literally just how things happen. <laughs> and the idea that uh, what was it that I lied about knowing her before we cast her? Mm -hmm. um, that just isn't a thing. And it does highlight this spectacular lack of knowledge in terms of how things work in production. Um, didn't happen. Okay. Yeah. We, are, we are one for one. Do uh, Marianne or Bill have any commentary on how productions work and casting people you know? Well, I mean, I think the point to there is a couple different things. Is one that he knew her real well and was trying to sneak her under the line. And there's also the, yeah, we met once, said hi, and moved past. In the end, who cares? It's a fan film. You're, 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 casting, a, you're casting a film. <laughs> yes, that's you're what trying, I said. You're trying to cast a film. Like, literally, as as he's famously said, you know, 90% of, of directing is casting. and so 90% of Hollywood is nepotism, y'all. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and. Plenty of people that I had never met before got cast that same day in any number of ways, right? So we had people come in and they read and I'm like, that was fantastic. We cast one person because she was fantastic on the strength of uh, the read that she submitted because she couldn't come in person, right? Normally don't do that, especially when you got in-person casting sessions. But lots of different people were cast for lots of different reasons, including one guy who is a Sikh. And he looked amazing. And we were sort of like, going to have to write a part for that guy because he just has this yeah. great look. And it really speaks to the kind of Star Trek ethos that a Sikh would be a captain of a, of a ship. And so we wrote a part for him. Like, that's how casting happens. It's just stuff. So the idea that you would sort of lie that you knew someone that you cast is just absurd. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Well, question number two. I'll take uh, Paul Jenkins for $20. <laughs> Paul and 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 I I have I have a I have an extra thing to add on to this so don't answer until I finish please. Paul, why aren't you talking about the fact that you got sued for a fraudulent copyright claim and how hypocritical that is considering your crowdfunding campaign is all about protecting creators. Now, as myself, I'm going to say this is a purposefully leading question. The more proper question is were you or maybe why were you supposedly sued for a fraudulent copyright claim. Or I don't know, maybe there's not even a question here. It's just about stating that they're shouting that that's what this is about when it's really not. Shoot, in Alex's own words, uh, at some point, several, I think several times or another, um, I believe there is video evidence of this. Supposedly, this lawsuit was not about a copyright claim or fraudulent. Right. Let me put huge quotes around this. Fraudulent <laughs> copyright claim. I have very long fingers. These are gigantic quotes. 
Yeah, the, um, this is this is sort of like fits under the old man yells at cloud category. So <laughs> the way the way this one works is this: um, Why am I not talking about being sued for a fraudulent copyright? I don't know. I haven't said anything for three years. I'm now I am talking about it, right? So let's talk about that. Uh, the first lawsuit was written presumably in anger and filed is sort of conspicuous by the fact that it was written in the font Calibri, which is not one that lawyers actually use. Um, <laughs> it was. <laughs> And it was sent over or brought over to Forsyth County, where I live, and filed. It was filed a little too early, unfortunately. So that meant that he couldn't, because um, he got angry, it meant that he could never ask for punitive damages. Oh, well. Now, over time, that thing was amended once, twice, three times, four times. You realize what four amendments to a complaint is? And only on the fourth amendment did he add a, a fraudulent copyright claim. It took him four tries, five tries, I should say, to add that claim of a fraudulent copyright. Over time, he's publicly stated that I claimed sole ownership of the script, which never happened. Right? I claimed ownership over the work that I did, which is the derivative work. And that's the end of that. So I'm not sure if that's a question or a, or a word salad that you gave me right there, but the answer is... Uh, <laughs> That's all I got. The answer is, what is a word solid for $20, Paul? That thing that you just asked me a minute ago, that's a word solid. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. Sorry. It's very hard to keep a straight face, but I am, into this, I am into this persona that I have created. Keep going, persona. <laughs> <laughs> Question number three for $30, Paul. Why did you lie about Alec having no legal debt from this case when you're perfectly aware that he does? Well, actually, like the entire world is perfectly aware that he doesn't. So in the CBS lawsuit, which recently happened, I should say it's just basically the arbitration finding. And I'm, I'm not looking at it. I don't have it in front of me. But basically, he tried... <laughs> He famously tried to counter sue CBS during this arbitration for the money that he says was spent on the lawsuit with me because it was their fault. Okay, so somehow he managed to think that him suing me for defamation was the fault of CBS and decided to sue them for it. And of course, that was thrown out by the arbitrator who in their legal finding, and I'm only paraphrasing here, I'm not quoting directly, basically said, Alec Peters could provide no evidence that he had spent a single penny on the lawsuit with me because he hadn't. I guess I would say that if there is evidence, as in actual bank records or checks, mm -hmm. perhaps screenshots of Venmo or Cash App or PayPal payments or Zelle payments even to a lawyer from Alec Peters, we would love to see them as proof since they were not given as proof in the recent CBS arbitration. Yeah, I mean, the arbitrator would like to see it too, because that was literally like something you would need to come up with. You'd have to say, here's the proof of how much money I spent on this lawsuit. So don't take my word for it. Take the arbitrator's word for it, you know? Exactly. And those documents are available online in several places. I will post links in the description of this video. So for uh, $40, this question is for all of us, even mm. though it was originally directed at Paul. <laughs> Why did Paul lie about Alec having no jobs when it is posted on social media, his social media, Alec's social media, that he has had several jobs? 
Now, as Tara, I'm going to say, I don't think this needs to be for just Paul, like I just said in the question, because, lol, Alec doesn't have a job. A seemingly bogus animal rescue run by him isn't a job. Bitching on webcasts isn't a job. Filming for a day or two every four years or whatever it is for a project that has yet to be released isn't a job. But does anybody else have answers for $40? Why did Paul lie and say Alec does not have a job? I would put it down that really in the overall scope of the time that Paul and Alec were around each other, we'll say, he very well may not have had a job. From I could say from Alec's POV, I would more think that he would think that there was something left of prop works that he was still working on or still doing some. I'm trying to think of things that in an Alec mind, what were the jobs that he had during that time? And could have been doing some negotiations to try and find a uh, someone that he might be able to try and shill for some extra money. Th again, thinking really on the props side of things. Beyond that, what, working at the coffee shop or trying to spin it up? That would be about it. But again, that's a difference in perspective between what others looking at him thinks as far as a job and what he does himself. And so it's kind of like, eh, it's... And also, if we're talking about what's posted on his social media as being truth, as I recall in the video that I watched, the live stream, Paul with you and Rob recently there was a clip on there of a deposition where they were asking him it lists you as having passed the bar in such and such a state have you and his answer is well no okay let's not even deep end him bullshitting on a resume because you know people pad a bit a bit that's a bit more than a bit but whatever but if that's not truth we've established that what he posts on social media about his credentials and such are not necessarily be taken at face value so you can't take him posting them on social media as being gospel because there's been introduced some level of suspicion of that. So, yeah, anyway. um, well, I can't answer the question, uh, Mav, unless you want to go, because uh, I can answer this question pretty simply. Would you like me to? I mean, my my joke was that maybe he didn't understand what the dictionary definition of a job is, <laughs> which is a paid position of regular employment. That's that's pretty cut and dry, I think. Right. Uh, well, I, I have a job and I work really hard. And so I have to manage all of this while I do my regular job. Right. I'm in the middle of a screenplay right now. I've got work that I do constantly. And so, you know, this is why this is such a drain on me. But to answer the question about um, him and a job, all you have to do is to go back and read the deposition transcripts or watch the deposition video in which we ask him, do you have a job? In which he says no. So... <laughs> I think that, and then we actually had to remind him that he did have a job when I was working with him for a while. He was uh, coaching teenage girls in volleyball, and we had to remind him that because he wasn't forthcoming with it and didn't tell us about it. And so I don't know, you know, like it's just from the horse's mouth, isn't it? I mean, if he says he didn't have a job when we did a deposition with him, then I'm not quite sure why that question would even come up because he said he didn't have a job. All right, for fifty dollars, this next question is for Tara. Oh, me? It's for That's me? You. Oh, yay! Tara, why did your partner lie and say he was somebody he wasn't to get people to follow the GoFundMe on Reddit? <sighs> Gosh, so it's a pretty big exaggeration to say that Dean lied and said he was somebody he wasn't. <laughs> uh, he merely acted like he stumbled upon the GoFundMe when sharing it to one subreddit. It's not as if he was like, I'm John Marston sharing this uh, GoFundMe, y'all. Uh, also, funnily enough, I'm pretty sure he got the idea from one of the Axonar flying monkeys who was doing the same thing on the Axonar subreddit while at the same time making comments on that same subreddit, the Axonar one, proving he was a longtime follower of Axonar. But, you know, either way, personally, I 
would not have done it, but I understand why Dean did because that's how Reddit works. That's how Reddit works. He shared it as acting like he was an outsider because it would have just immediately been downloaded into oblivion. And again, I wouldn't have done it, but that's how Reddit works. And it's also not Dean's problem or for fuck's sake, mine, <laughs> by the way, that it took that long for the flying monkeys to realize that Marston underscore lives is Dean's social media name on most platforms. Shit, I have tagged him in stuff on Twitter, and I know for a fact that they watch everything I do on Twitter, so maybe they just should have paid better attention? I don't know. This is a stupid fucking question. Who the fuck cares? <laughs> I feel like if we're going to uh... answer these questions, if it's okay, I do feel like it would be fair to kind of put some questions back. Um, mm. Because, you know, these are all like basically the type of question that asks the question, do I have integrity or transparency or accountability? So I feel like I've answered my questions, right? So, you know, as you know, uh, Rob Burnett and I have started sort of an occasional series uh, that's loosely titled Acts in Our Revelations because it's time to throw a spotlight on this after many years of not being involved in this um, and being completely silent and just be berated across the internet like on a daily basis um, by this person and his friends. Um, you know, it was time for me to kind of speak up because, you know, I need to get through this lawsuit, right? And so the way to sort of like get some balance here then is, okay, I will answer those questions. Just did, right? There's your answers to those questions. So now I got a few of my own um, and this will sort of tease what I'm going to be doing with Rob. On Tuesday, Rob and I are going to be taking a look at the uh, bank accounts that <laughs> were brought into our attention as we commissioned the documentary. And also we're able to cross-reference them with the documents that Alec Peters supplied to CBS uh, in the in the CBS lawsuit um, when he famously supplied them and then sent a separate set of documents once he was called back for deposition. So I'm going to ask just like a couple of ordinary questions. I think this is pretty fair. You know, I'll, I'll ask a few line items, right? Let's try this one because I'm literally just looking at the bank accounts right now. Why did you spend from the Axonar Productions account? Why on 11-26, that's November the 26th, 2014, did you spend $97.85 of backer money at Emerald Knights Comics. Question number two, why two days later did you spend $35.52 of backer money at Leather, etc., which is actually BDSM bondage gear wholesaler? But um, what do you do? Do not oh, yeah, well, we're, we're, we're kink-asking why is the question. That was the whole point, right? And then, I'm kink-asking why he spent all of that backer money on bondage gear. Yeah, it's, it's why he spent money. But I think this is probably a, a good one, right? Maybe I'll just end it with this question. Why on November the 25th of 2014 did you spend $7,850 of backer money on an item purchased from Profiles in History at Calabasas, California, and then three days later spend a further $1,242.60 on item from Profiles in History, Calabasas, California? That seems like a fair question to ask. Why did you spend $7,850 from the Axonar Productions bank account in Profiles in History, Calabasas, California on November the 25th of 2014? That's an easy question to answer. Persona agrees, Paul. These are all lovely questions, but as we have nobody from Axonar who is willing to speak up and answer these questions for $60, Paul, what happened with that disgusting, quote unquote, 
email you sent to Alec that caused you to be fired? <laughs> um, so, you know, after having tried every method that we could to get Alec to play ball, because, you know, we had learned about the troll hunters. I didn't know what they were. I found out that it was like literally a group of people that go out and try to discredit people. And it's like literally watching the actions of like some seven-year-olds on a playground and having to you know again it's just not part of my world right like i do this for my job and and the idea of like having something that in my world is just so antithetical to the way that we conduct ourselves um so after trying everything with this guy especially to do with like coming clean about whether or not the 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 budgets were in place understand that you know we couldn't do any post-production because meta studios was never sent um say the footage of his sessions how could i do director selects if i never got the, the footage right it's like not possible uh, we didn't have a post-production supervisor and when we did he quit and then he came back again uh we didn't have um any money so you can't do those things right so at a certain point you know we were kind of pretty tired and at a certain point he did something that was absolutely bonkers he called me and said i've just been talking to our camera operator and we think we can do such and such a, in, in Los Angeles to shoot. And I said, well, you know, you can't call me about that. You can't be speaking to a camera operator. Scott Connolly's our producer. You need to go and talk to Scott Connolly, right? Go tell him what you've got in mind and how that will work, um, because that's the way that the protocols work in this thing. And rather than go to speak to Scott, he sent out an email that said, I've just been talking with Paul and we've all decided such as such. And I'm like, my God, man, like literally 10 minutes ago, we just had this conversation. Like you did not have me endorse your idea. I told you to go speak to Scott. Scott was understandably frustrated and said, look, if you want us to move on from this project, if you want Meta to move on, we'll just move on. That's fine. We'll just go do something else. Right. And so he said, we, we need to talk about this. And I said, I don't need to fucking talk about anything, mate. And so I dropped him a couple of, it's like a work email, right? I dropped him a couple of F-bombs, told him like, get your shit together because we can't do this with you. It's an email with a couple of F-bombs in it. And it's, it's a new tactic of mine. Like I've been so good and so quiet and so kind for this entire time. Maybe just like yelling at him once or try something. That was probably a bad idea given his ego. And so as a result of that, it's, uh, you know, he, he basically waited a month and said, you can't leave, you're fired, right? Okay, fine. We'll move on. But the idea that it's disguised and, and categorized as a disgusting email is extremely Trumpian, in my opinion. It's the worst, most disgusting email I've ever seen in my life. It's not. It's an email about work with a couple of F-bombs in it, and you know it. So chill out. It's just an email to try to get you to stop behaving the way that you behave. And, and listen, when you talk about disgusting, I mean, I think you need to sort of have a perspective, right? That's an email with a couple of F-bombs in it. It's very different from, say, talking about someone and wishing that they would die of cancer, okay? Which which I've, you know, once I got to see the way, you know, the stuff that he'd been doing and things he'd been saying, wishing me to die of cancer is pretty unpleasant. Wishing, wishing people an axe monitor to die of horribly of cancer, that's pretty disgusting. So the idea that you're going to try to equate one with the other is, is again, it's like the action of a seven-year-old. It's just trying to, it's all transactional. It's trying to get curry favor and get people on your side.
Well, I would love our viewers to weigh in in the comments whether they think this was a disgusting email on a scale of 1 to 10, please. We will not discuss that in this webcast. Just uh, weigh in in the live chat or the comments. Thank you very much. Now for $70, this question was originally for Tara and Marianne Butler, but everybody will be open to answering it after Tara and Mab answer. Why do Tara and Mary Ann support people who think it's okay to start fights in the middle of the convention floor? Uh, yeah, my explanation is I don't know. Like, I did not know what had happened until after it did. And I have been very vocal about how I don't think Sean should have approached Alec in that manner, let alone really at all. But, you know, that's that's my only that's always been my only take on it. That's it. Mary Ann, what about you? If she is referring to Dragon Con 2021, yes, I wasn't there. I did not attend that year of the event. It is the only year that I have not attended in, gosh, 16 years now. So I had no knowledge of any of that until recently when I started reading things about it because I was like, what? What is she talking about exactly? I, I'm not. I'm not sure because I I wasn't there. So why would that be relevant? to me. I do agree that anyone threatening fisticuffs at a convention is not a great idea. Also, if someone has threatened you about being at a convention, the proper thing to do is to alert convention security. So that that is the right thing to do. But at the same time, don't make shit up. Yeah. Now, to be fair, Sean did not threaten fisticuffs. He printed out a and, and again, I am not saying I agree with any of this. He printed out Alec saying he wanted to go 10 rounds in the hey, ring with any of the fat fisticuffs. Okay, I just want, but I want to be very clear because they are very good at twisting words, okay? Yes. So Sean printed out a thing that Alec had said and saying happy birthday to Alec. And again, I have always been very vocal about how I didn't know about it until after it happened. But yeah, bad idea, my dude. I like Sean, but bad idea, my dude. Don't do that. Yeah, it's just... It now, I do I do have a little bit, maybe a little bit more understanding of the situation. I am not a these kids are my blood parent, but having talked to Dean about this quite a bit, this came in response to Alec calling Sean's son like a, what did he call him? Like a Hitler baby or something like that. It was, he basically. Oh, yeah, he, called, he called his son a Hitler youth. Yeah, Hitler youth. That's what it was. Yeah. All right. So there was there's a lot of there's a lot of stupid history here. Again, I would never say that I approve of this. I have never said I approve of it. I have never acted like I approved of it. I think it's fucking hilarious that you weren't even at Dragon Con, but somehow during, you you were named in this question, Mary. I know. You know, oh my I gotta God. chime in on this one when it was happening. I remember calling, I was starting to hear Windsor because I was at Dragon Con that year and I'm hearing about a bit about this and I called Mab to tell you a bit about it and you're like, I think you're, the quote was, ugh. And um, that was about it. We went on to talk about other stuff. And, but I think the, the thing about supporting someone who did this, my suspicion is that they're wondering, basically, Tara, why are you still friends with Sean? Blah, blah, blah. You know, so what, it, 
in their mind that's supporting. And I think there's a world of difference between knowing someone that, okay, someone I know, I like them well enough, but they get some dickish stuff and I don't approve of it. That's very different than going, yeah, I love what you did, which I don't think anybody here would because it's mostly more mortifying to do that at, at, at an event, especially an event where we have deep relationships with on the, actually what's really sad, do I know Sean? Uh, you would recall his name being brought up in many of the, the early posts about the haters. Got I it. had never personally had any interaction with him and he sent me a friend request within the last two days. So gotcha. it was more, more like, I just, uh, he's not looking on my mind is remembering the person. And so it's more like it's, it's part flights in the middle. Why we're supporting people. Why it's okay to start fights. We're not, none of us support Alec. But I think, I think that's response. We're not supporting him. So that's oh, I'm sorry. I think that was a persona response. But um, well, it's so many people that are sitting there, and what's funny is they've dropped any pretense of debate, and all the haters can really do is, eh, if you want to come out and fight me or something like what that's that's all they've got left now is just fisticuffs. So, so I like to just point something out. I've been able in the research that we've done for the documentary to go back to a number of message boards, which I've scrubbed pretty handily. I can go back to a message board. It's Rec Arts Comics. This is back on Usenet in 1998, in which Alec Peters threatens to fight people publicly, tells them he's an attorney. This is something that has literally been going on online for 25 years. It also happens in um, a number of other forums. There's some that he's been banned from, some that I've, you know, this behavior is just the same set of behavior. Can I mention one other thing as well? Because I'm, I just switched over to the comments and I want to clarify something. So one of the questions that's been raised here is, is this thing about um, politics, right? So everyone that's commenting on politics, please stop. Here's your problem with me. I don't do politics. I'm an old punk. I don't believe in any politics, right? Politics, just so that we're clear, is a self-enrichment scam for all of the people that do it, right? So I don't care about Trump and I don't care about Biden. I don't care about any of these people. They're all a bunch of wankers, all of them, okay? So please do not make this about politics. Thank you. Well, for $80, this next question was also for Tara and Mab. Why do Tara and Mab think it's okay to say that somebody has fake badges and is trespassing just so that they'll get arrested when it isn't true? I believe this is in reference to Dragon Con 2022. Certain folks like to bring up this supposed situation. No, that's where... 2021. That's that's the no, 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 no. It's it's 2022. I know what it's it? 2022. Yeah, it was it was the year after. And here's how I know why. Certain people like to bring up this supposed situation where people told Dragon Con officials that fake badges were being used and Alec and perhaps others, but I think it was just Alec, were therefore trespassing at Dragon Con and should be arrested. If this happened, which I don't believe in these terms it did, I don't know why. And as I wasn't a part of it, that's really all I can say. Now, I did ask around a little bit. And as far as I can tell, the original person who said something to Dragon Con believed that Alec had been banned from Dragon Con the previous year for his assault on Sean 
which is in Dragon Con's own rules. So did not believe that he should be attending the following year. But I was not involved in any of these conversations. I have an opinion on whether or not Dragon uh, Dragon Con should allow Alec back. But my opinion is just my opinion. It doesn't make a difference. And I've never personally said anything to anyone at Dragon Con, like officials wise or whatever about whether or not Alex should be there. But I, I do find it hilarious that the fact that if this happened, I don't exactly know the reasons and I wasn't a part of it, but I was asked this question. But also, Mab, you specifically were also asked this question. Yeah. So if it's about 2021, again, I was not there. As far as I can tell through the research I have done on my own pre this podcast, it could mean either 21 or 22. Because uh, as far as we can tell, he was asked to leave in 2021. And for all intent and purposes, all the reports I've seen, everything official, documentation wise, he tried to come back in again the following day. And that's that's exactly what he did. He came back and started working the booth again. And he was ejected. After being told he could not, right? Like that's that's the thing. He was told due to the activity the previous day where the PD was called that he was not allowed back into the facility or any facility run, operated, rented, whatever by the convention at the time. So the story is that the second day, the day following, he returned to the vendor hall, went back to the booth and went right back to work. And supposedly he was taken out from then again having a second badge. Now, whether this was the previous day, it was his vendor badge that was revoked. And the second day, it was a membership badge or a guest badge or a panelist badge. Like that could be the whole thing. And people are just kind of blowing it out of proportion. But then that that's like, that's all I know is that that is what was talked about in 2021. In 2022, there were rumors that I didn't pay any attention to at the time that he had been banned from the event and had tried to come into the event. But again, I never saw any proof positive one way or the other, so I can't really comment on that. My understanding about the fake badges, the main things that I'd heard about was around 2021. I don't have any data on 2022, and but the suspicion is that that very thing that Matt that you spoke about, and I could swear I found saw something the other day with a comment about that with regards to the, the police reports that he had two badges, not illegitimately anything like that. He had one as a vendor, and then he was also a panelist, so he had a guest badge as well. Which, yeah, letter of the rule is supposed to just have one badge or another badge, but whatever. So he had two badges, fine. So they probably pulled the one badge. This is hypothesis that they pulled one badge on when he got punted out of the vendor room, but he, when he returned back the next day, he had his other badge. It was still a legit badge. It was his. In theory, the security should just ask him, do you have any other badges? And and pulled those as well on that first, on the day of the incident. But that's that's where I'm kind of thinking that that, that that story has elevated from. And then for 22, I could see people, if they didn't know whether he should be there or not, um, or if they you know had the suspicion that, oh, he's really not supposed to be here. And then, so he must have a fake badge or something. Someone could have chimed that in, but... I I don't recall. I mean, the last time I last time I oh no, I did see Alec at Dragon Con last year over in the the food court just doing doing their thing. But I haven't I haven't interacted with him since uh, since the time they were on the just walking through the floor underneath the Pulse Lounge at the Marriott. So I, I mean, as far as I can tell, there was a whole narrative where he had been blacklisted 
aka banned from the event Mm -hmm. after everything that happened in 2021. But I don't know if that actually happened or not. So this whole thing where people were saying that he had been banned and should be removed on site from 2022, I have no idea if that's true or not. Yeah, I don't really know the details either. And I'm more tuned into this than you guys are. I so I I do know that somebody reported to Dragon Con that they were there. I do not believe that the original person said they were there with fake badges. I think they were just saying I, I thought this person was banned due to security concerns from the previous year. That's all I know for sure. I think that's enough on that. Yeah. For ninety <laughs> for, for ninety dollars. Paul, this question is for you. Why do you think you can get financial information from a case, quote, that is about a copyright claim, unquote? I will say that I don't need to litigate this in the court of public opinion, right? This is for the courtroom. It's the whole point of what I'm trying to do. So it generally doesn't matter what I would say right now, because it's it's not intended particularly, like my response is not intended particularly to kind of telegraph what my legal defense would be, right? You know, but there's a pretty simple answer to that anyway, which has nothing to do with my defense. Number one, this is not a copyright case because I was sued for defamation. So if you're going to be sued for defamation, you want to defend yourself against that claim that you were defamatory. And one of the claims was that the press release we sent out from Meta Studios, which I didn't write, by the way, my my CEO wrote it, was if that's supposedly defamatory, you know, the thing that he supposedly found defamatory was the, the, the statement that Meta's core values are transparency, accountability, integrity, to which he responded, I have accountability, transparency, and integrity, to which I then say, okay, let's examine that then, shall we? Let's take a look at your accountability. Did you account to your backers on Kickstarter for the money you spent? I think the answer to that is that's certainly in question. Therefore, I'm entitled to bring it up. So he's only been screaming about it being a copyright case ever since he added that 13 months after the the, the lawsuit started. However, like secondarily and primarily more important, he's intentionally neglecting to mention the fact that he was countersued. So I countersued him for fraud and for vexatious litigation. And as part of the proof and showing that he's a vexatious litigant and that he committed fraud, I'm entitled to bring up all of these financial records to show how the fraud was committed. I'm absolutely certain with a sort of certainty that defies logic, although, you know, it's still just my opinion, that he knows all of these things. He has to know all of these things because if he doesn't, that's not very intelligent, right? Of course, I'm able to bring up these things into into a courtroom because that's literally the crux of my case against him. So spouting off and saying, you aren't permitted to bring this stuff into into the courtroom by trying to litigate it in the court of public opinion is crazy. And then finally, on top of all of that, I don't need to bring this in the court. I've got plenty of evidence, thanks very much, all over the place of any number of other things. So maybe we'll bring this evidence in and maybe we won't. But what's really going on right now is that disregard the court case Let's just take a look at what backers of Axanar deserve to know. That's the truth. You know, I'm making the documentary to document this stuff. And and to me, if you backed Axanar and you gave, let's take a random figure, $100 to Axanar, right? Should your money have been spent on Warhammer toys? You know, is that fair, right? So it doesn't matter if I bring it into the courtroom or not. Like what Rob and I are going to expose when we do our thing on Tuesday is what the money was spent on. What difference does that that make to my court case or not? It has nothing to do with the court case if I don't choose it to be part of the evidence. Who cares? There's my answer. 
this segment brought to you by Warhammer. So be sure to hit up those UK events. They're always the best. What Not expensive up, at all. <laughs> what Paul brings up is really important to keep a note on is that my understanding, I need to go back and look at the fine print on Kickstarter and stuff, but really, I mean, it's not like, it'd be hard for anyone, I believe, to go after Alec for their funds that they donated to the Kickstarter because all someone really needs to show is they made an effort to produce their thing, whatever it it is that the Kickstarter is for and that they did a good faith and he could show, look, Airy uh, Studios, even as, as it was, they built that out, all the sets that Dean built, stuff like that. But then the money ran out and they couldn't do it, blah, blah, blah. So I think on from the legal standpoint with regards to people who contributed to Kickstarter, I don't know that there's really a thing there, but what Paul's bringing up is they deserve to know what happened. There's a whole lot of questions throughout, and this isn't like $10,000 or $15,000. This is a million and a half plus, and it just went poof. Maybe what, you know, maybe a third of that or less was accounted for, and the rest of it just, and, and they, they used it for some of the stuff and the leases. But beyond that, uh, where did it all go? And I think that's where, what the all the contributors, and also really an investigation into this is really, if it's done right, helps set the guidelines for how people should be held accountable when they're taking lots of people's money. There is a Kickstarter a number of years ago that someone came up with to build a, it was going to be a, basically build a screen door for the Death Star. That was the entire thing. It's like they didn't want the Death Star to get blown up. They were going to make a screen door that they're going to put over the top. And the only don donation that they took was like a $1 donation. And they got several million dollars in like a, a day. And the people that ran the Kickstarter, they, they closed it out and they refund all the money going dude this was a joke you know this is not a, a real thing because i don't want to just all take your money this right. was meant as as something funny and right. this is where i think the the you know, the total inverse happened here is he got everyone's money and it just it, it ran away from him and it also then fed the issues that you touched on paul and um tara i don't i don't want to preempt you but i can see the the comment if you don't oh know. yes okay hold on hold on Go we got our we got our we have our last question and this one is a it's a big one for $100. And I also want to preface this. I'm sorry. Persona wants to preface this yet again with, we do not kink shame. We kink ask why. But also, if anybody other than Paul wants to comment on this, please feel free to do so after Paul is done speaking. That said, why does Paul, and I'm very obviously putting Paul's name in quotes, think it's okay, also in quotes, to call a woman, quote, a slave and other derogatory terms against her will, knowing, knowing that she survived a sexual assault and that is traumatic for her, unquote. <sighs> and uh, okay, let me let me be very clear. I, I'm I'm making the question like by by putting it in the persona, it sounds like I'm making this a joke. I'm not making this a joke. This is right. a very serious thing. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so um, just to, maybe we should also tell everyone that all of these questions that we're asking were posed to this podcast by certain parties. So all of this is out there. It's public. You can find it. That is what we are responding to. We did not make these up. We did not paraphrase these. These are directly from a post asking why we would not answer these questions. Yes. So and and again, from all from the same person. And it's not easy to, I, I, I don't want to just share a screenshot of a post, but yes, this is, these are questions that were posed from somebody on the other side of things. And like Mab said, oh, they won't answer these. 
And somebody in the chat is saying these posts are going to be mysteriously deleted after this video. Guess what? Screenshots are forever. <laughs> well, let me let me um, let me address it anyway. Right. So what is being discussed is a relationship between um, Alec and his girlfriend, which is like his like BDSM relationship. It would not have been something I would ever have commented on. Right. Certainly, I'd probably be the first to stand in line and literally stand up even for them to say, don't kink shame anybody. Like if anyone can do what they want to do in the privacy of their bedroom, right? So during deposition, there was a line of questioning that was relatively pertinent to what was needed, right? Obviously, which is, are you being asked or coerced to do things on behalf of somebody else because of that type of relationship? You know, which would somewhat be the misuse of that, like relatively, you know, a, a BDSM relationship is very, uh, very much a contract. Like in, in many ways, it's a much more trusting relationship than most people have, right? Because you have an agreement of, of how you're going to conduct yourselves, right? And so, so when that line of questioning came up in the deposition, I was asked to leave the room. I went down to get a cup of coffee and I was given no information about what was asked and neither did I ask my attorney, which is exactly the way that you are supposed to conduct yourself. I didn't ask Ellie Wolf, my attorney, anything about it. And he didn't tell me anything about it. The general context, I think I could understand, you know, because that was a line of question that was beginning. And then they kind of stopped and said, Paul, can you leave the room? Right? It's attorney's eyes only. However, they decided to bring it up. They decided to talk about it publicly. And Ellie was furious. The idea that I did everything I was supposed to do, ignored any of that stuff, never asked him a question. We did things the right way, for which I'm constantly penalized, by the way. We did things the right way, and then suddenly they brought it up. And why Ellie was furious was because they brought up publicly that she was questioned about that when her she had found out that her mom was ill or her mom had passed away or something, right? They didn't tell us. And so she she didn't say, I can't sit for deposition. I just had a bad day. I found out about my mom or something like that. She didn't tell us. And when they then said publicly, how dare his attorney question me about this when my mom was just, and Ellie was furious, because, understandably, because it had nothing to do with us and we had done everything right. And now they were bringing up all of this stuff about this relationship. So recently in our filing, when, when we filed for motion for, for sanctions and all that kind of stuff, Ellie pointed out quite rightly that there is, they have been trying to get like a spousal um, exemption, you know, like, like I would have with my wife, right? So I'm allowed, you know, she doesn't, you know, become part of this lawsuit, right? They tried to do that and they are boyfriend and girlfriend. And he, and he made it clear that neither a boyfriend, girlfriend, nor master slave relationship, that's Ellie's words, because that's the way that he listed it, right? So I wanted to check into this to see exactly how annoyed they should have been if it, the word master slave was. So I actually got in touch with someone that's been I've been consulting with uh, in the BDSM community is kind of an expert and said, tell me about what happens when someone is called a slave as opposed to, say, a sub, like a submissive or something like that. And the answer was, yeah, it's not a really big deal. There's a relatively close relationship between the two of them. Some people will say, if you call them a slave, they'll say, no, no, I'm a sub. And some people, if they're a sub, will go, no, 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 I'm a slave. And there's a slight dis distinction between the two of them. But no one loses their mind because they were called such a thing in the BDSM community, right? No one does unless they're intending to lose their mind because they want to prove a point. And that's pretty much what's going on here. I didn't say it. 
My attorney said it. My attorney said it for a reason. And the largest reason is because they are the people that made it public in what should have been a private forum because it was for attorney's eyes only. You you go off and you make all of the mistakes and do all of the things yourself and then scream across the internet at, at my attorney to say that he was demeaning you. You know exactly what you are doing. Well, and I think it's also very important to point out that how would anybody know about a past sexual assault and that trauma? And I am not at all saying that that's just something to brush off. It's absolutely not. I have been there. I am not brushing that off. But if I had not just said that on this webcast, would any of you, the three of you with me or anybody watching have known that about me? No. No. Now, again, maybe that was something that was mentioned to your attorney in the privacy of that conversation. I, I don't know. You don't know. Because again, you actually abided by the rules, the laws even in that particular instance. So I just want to make it very, very fucking clear that whoever might have known about this, it wasn't them who you specifically for sure were not the person who brought this into the public eye. Just like you specifically for sure were not the person who brought the illness of of a family member into the public eye. I'm sorry, not sorry, but girlfriend, the call is coming from inside the house. Yeah. If somebody puts medical information about a family member into an email thread that is specific to this case that is going to go like like that is in public record. And and listen, it sucks. I agree. It sucks. But stop weaponizing your trauma when you're the people who are putting it out there. And that's what that's what happened, basically. And, it, and it's terrible, really, because the actions are that of somebody that's basically saying all of my trauma is really bad and you don't have any. I saw that one recently. You know, the idea that basically my wife doesn't suffer from a, uh, a pain condition because she got cured. That's literally something that was thrown out there the other day. Yeah, well, there's no problem for him because his wife got cured. Why do I care about that? My mom died. Well, how do you know that my wife got cured? You have no knowledge absolutely none whatsoever of how she's dealing with her pain condition right so the idea that you try to act is crazy i mean it'd be the equivalent of going up to you know if this is crystal we're talking about that if something comes up it is look at her and go get over it it's like no that's not it's it's for them to determine whether when they're over or not or what is harmful or not and you know your point about him taking you know making comments about the wife this is just really one of the most evil things that i've seen i haven't really used the word evil in any of this of late but it is is you invoke in people around the people you're trying to attack their kids their loved ones the people that are not part of this and that has that goes from beyond the from just being an asshole to just being evil because there's nothing that that entails like if dean and, and if he wants to pick a fight with dean great go do it do it the good old-fashioned way with with guys go go out back beat each other for a bit and then go get a beer call it good but don't but not, go at, a convention. But not at a convention yeah do it in the- not at a convention <laughs> Do it like Julie does over in the hotel bar. Anyway, yeah, I did. I went there. But it's like for them to go after you, Tara, because they were mad at Dean, there's no right Paul going after your wife and stuff like that. It's just like that's all just. Can I interject something? Yeah. There's this this like need for things to be true, right? And I've noticed this in terms of the psychology of this. A real need for things to be true. I want this to be true. And I want this contradictory statement to be true as well. Like when you're dealing with narcissism, they want their cake and they want to eat it. And I've never seen so a person want this more. 
constant like i want my cake and want to eat it right and i want this to be true and i want that to be true so one of the things that that he's been railing against is i didn't sue his kids i didn't sue his family listen for fuck's sake dude of course you're suing my family. Like, it's not like my children are not inter intertwined with our finances. If I'm sued, then of course you are suing my family because I provide money, you know, that I earn to help my family survive. So the idea that you don't want it to be my family is just too bad for you. And it is my family. You are suing me and my family because that's what you are doing and you does just because that's an inconvenient truth it doesn't mean to say that it's not true and and they just don't want it to be true so like how dare he say it's his family that's being sued well because my family is being sued yeah for my part like i had mentioned kind of briefly earlier and again it is detailed in my five or six blog entries not 47 <laughs> I had well and and I had posted I posted an article in 2019 called 10 infamous pieces of fandom lore. We actually talked about several of them in the 2022 Toxic Fandom webcast. One of them that we did not touch in touch on in that webcast was Axnar. And then in 2020 when I was living by myself and bored <laughs> Bored with life, I finally started a TikTok. And one of the things I did was I started doing a series of videos on that article. And I think I did like six of them, six of the 10. It might have been fewer, but Axanar was the second one. There was one before that. There were several after that. And that has been brought up by people from their side as like me inserting myself into this Axanar problem. Um, no, I was stating facts <laughs> in an article and then repeating them on a 60 second video. <laughs> but when Alex sued Dean in 2020, again, in the wrong jurisdiction for something he never really had a right to sue him over in the first place. Dean and I were together. Obviously, we've been together for a little less than a year. And I joined AXA Monitor like no late November of 2020. And I commented on a total of, I think, 13 posts between when I joined Axe Monitor and uh, like June or whatever of 2021. That is what they are using. Like, I guess I, I don't even think it's the article. It's that 60 second TikTok video that really gets focused on, which is fucking hilarious because that video had like a few hundred views. It's not as if it went viral or some shit. Okay. The Final Fantasy VII house one that I did has way more interaction than the XNR one. But they're super obsessed with that stupid TikTok video. And the next year, like I come under attack by Alec himself. I think Dean shared the article about the coffee shop. I'm not, I do not want to get into that period, full stop. But Dean shared an article about the coffee shop that they had been involved in, but were no longer that was succeeding without them and all of a sudden it was like dean you and your girl are gonna come into full discovery when i sue you and then i posted something about like i literally just posted the definition of libel and it was like tara lynn the what, what is the, what is the thing that he says all the time paul you know it's like truth is the truth is the full yeah i know it off the top of my head because he said it so many times truth, yeah. truth is the ultimate defense to defamation I'm yeah like, okay dude well, you have to be telling the truth first but then it turned into like a, an actual personal attack on me, my integrity, 
um, my relationship with Dean, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, no, I didn't step the fuck down. Sorry, Alec. Maybe you're used to women being subservient and scared of you. But no, you're lying about me. You're threatening me. I'm not stepping down from that. Period. Well. So... We're close to three hours. Huh. I would love to do some concluding thoughts. Actually, can I, one thing I'd like to throw in. Yeah, just, no, go ahead. Uh, just because it's one of the other main questions I saw come up over here uh, from Antonio HB from a little while ago. And it was specifically the, can you comment on Alex's statements about having an audit done and also relating fo photos of binders that supposedly so show the books? And I'm like, this is a, it was a good little question that had been over here. And so I was just curious i can certainly speak to that because i'll try to do it quickly though because we're closing in on three hours um the answer is this right that um taking a photo of a series of binders does not prove that you have something in those binders um supplying a a summary that was made in quicken slash whatever that says it's a two-page summary this is how much money we spent honestly does not make a financial accounting okay so, so I had this phenomenon happen to me with uh, he and Jonathan Lane, who basically conspired to forge my signature. <laughs> why, why would you want to go to that length? But they tried to forge my signature and they sent it. And so Jonathan Lane put a picture of a supposed um, talent release that I had supposedly signed on top of a pile of stack of other talent releases to prove that I had signed it. Um, but he didn't show the signature because, you know, he wanted to keep my signature private. The only problem was he knew he didn't have a signature, which is why he was trying to find a way to forge it. And when he did it, he put it in a video to prove that I had signed a talent release. And when he was called out for that signature forgery, he changed his video online. He altered the video so that that part was no longer in it. So you're talking about people that are totally capable of taking a photo of a bunch of stuff and saying, this is real, honest. This is proof, honest. Well, let me tell you what proof is, right? If you want to find out what happened to the Axonar backer money, you want to be able to look at the bank accounts that they came into and the internal records that they're matched up against. That's all you want to do, right? It, it's not that crazy, is it? I mean, hey, trust me, I spent $7,000. It's a lot different from coming up with a $7,000 receipt and showing it to you off of a bank account. So on Tuesday, Rob and I are going to show the bank accounts and we're going to show the internal records that were provided to CBS. You can match the two of them up yourself. They speak for themselves, don't they? Don't take my word for it. I always say this. Don't take my word for it. Take their word for it because that's what we're going to be showing. Yeah. I'm excited for that in a way. In, in this like, oh, God, the cringe way. All that said, concluding thoughts from everybody. Mab, you go first. Anything anything you want to just sort of say about everything you've given us in this webcast? So I, I grew up as the weird kid who was really into Star Trek, and I was bullied every day of my elementary school and middle school life because I had a Star Trek The Next Generation fanny pack. I was really hoping that that would be done and over with as I got older and kind of found my people who are all very interested in the same things I was. And lo and behold, I've found that it's worse as an adult because there is the, the nameless and the faceless aspect of all of this, where somebody like in this situation can incense an entire group of people for no reason to go and attack someone they have never met, they have never encountered, they don't know their side of the story, they don't care to ask, and just make everything a shit show 
for no good reason other than someone told them to in a fandom that they share. And it sucks. And I see it every single day in every aspect of my professional career. And I really don't like it when it comes into my personal life. And when it does, I'm going to say something about it. So yeah, let's try to make this stop. That's the whole point of all of this. Call it out when you see it. Share your information with other people so it can't keep happening again and again and again. And look at the patterns. That's it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the whole the whole point of this webcast was to shine, like I said, a case study light on this hashtag stop toxic fandom movement because it is general. There's there are problems across so many different aspects of fandom, but this particular one is just really down and dirty. And the fact that I, I mean, again, like we we go back to mentions earlier of like Gamergate and you know, particularly as a uh, woman, you Mab, and me, a femme presenting person who, you know, goes by they, them, but as if anybody from their other side of things can remember that, despite me like saying it over and over again. They attack us on sexuality, on our personal relationships, but then they go and they attack Bill and Paul on the exact things that can get them in trouble as men, you know, even though both yeah. Bill and Paul are well known in fandom circles and have very, very good reputations. Uh, so Bill, last uh, last thoughts. I you know I mentioned it uh, a while ago when uh, Paul and I had sent you a message on it. It's like, I do have a pipe dream wish that one day it will dawn on Alex how successful he could have been if he just would have brought the people together and let them you know, create the vision that he had come up with and him really like, wow, it could have been amazing. It could have been really fandom and genre changing, but unfortunately it will be. And it has been, there's no more phase twos. There's no Star Trek continues. There's no more of the rest of those things that are done because it all ended because that he made a choice. And then he decided to burn the bridges along the way. And that, that hubris is what, what did it. And we, you know, we're all here. We're all fans of fandom and whether it be comics or TV shows or books or movies, because, you know, the world sucks enough these days. We need to have something that's some part of, of joy or that makes us feel something because mm -hmm. right now we're so the day-to-day -day world is not that great. It shouldn't be coming out of fandom. This is where we're sitting there arguing. So really how quick is Superman going to beat up Batman? And that should be the level of disagreement that we run into. Yeah, I agree. I know what I would want to say, you know, um, pretty carefully, right? Or pretty clearly. I've been involved in this business for a really long time, and I've seen a lot of this type of behavior, but I was really surprised by the sheer level of like hatred and venom that seems to surround these people. I was also really surprised by a person's ability to simply lie, because um, I don't really like calling somebody a liar. I've never wanted to call someone a liar. I would rather point out a lie that they told, but there was this incessant stream of, of lies, lie after lie after lie after lie. And what I began to realize about this was that, you know, this was a series of psychological manipulations that work a certain way, that work, you know, they work the same way for Jim Jones and the, the Guyana cult. They work for such and such a gate, you know, game of gate, comics gate, whatever. All of these things are very, very clearly tied together. And these behaviors lead people to do really, really bad things. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm actually grateful that in our chat, Antonio brought up something about politics, right? Because even though I don't think we should talk about politics, I think we can certainly talk about it from my perspective as an outsider that hates politics. I watch people getting so frustrated because Republican Democrat, right? Republican Democrat, it's just tribalism. 
all of this tribalism is tearing us to pieces. And so when the when the wrong people get into something that we care about, especially politics, right? We're worried about the future. We're worried about what it's going to mean to our kids. We're worried about women's reproductive rights and all that. And when the wrong people get in there, they're just weaponizing it. And so people get really, really angry because they're very, very passionate. And where does the money flow? You want to look at where the money flows. That's the most important reason why these people are doing it. All the money flows to the people that stand up there and get in everybody else's face. So when you take a look at something like this, all I care about is what happened. And when you actually look at what's happening, you need to look at where the money flowed. $1.5 million flowed in a certain direction and it never came back out again. And all of that is around weaponizing and controlling what is essentially something that belongs to everyone, which is Star Trek. Star Trek has nothing to do with this level of antagonism. Yeah. Star Trek is about people loving each other and getting along in the future and every race and every creed and every color and all this kind of stuff. And even the Klingons end up being the good guys and, you know, Worf ends up being a, you know, yeah. and, and then the Romulans are bad, right? Like like all of this, and, and frankly, Roddenberry created it after the Second World War. And so it was all about like, what do we do post-war, right? Like, how do we deal with Russia? How do we deal with Germany? How we forgive our enemies all of this is a super positive thing you put it in the hands of the wrong people and it becomes weaponized and now it becomes horrific so i feel this should be the end of it i'm sick of watching this happen and i figured i needed to take a stand as much as anybody i need to stand up to this and prevent it from happening to anybody else ever again because we need to get this guy in a courtroom so that he can answer for what he's done to fandom and what he's done to me and what he's done to Dean and what he's done to Jared, what he's done to Tiana, what he's yeah. done to all of these people, let alone the fact, and this is the last thing I'll say, let alone the fact that I keep this massive set of like folders on my desktop and it's all about evidence. It's all the evidence that I've accumulated this entire time. And the biggest folder I've got is legal threats. It's by far the biggest folder that I that I have because every time that he gets angry or he wants something or he's scared of something specifically, usually when he's like fearful, he turns around and threatens lawsuits. I'm going to yep. sue you. I'm going to sue you. I'm going to sue you. And then in the middle of it constantly says, I'm a lawyer. I'm an attorney as a trained attorney. All of that stuff happens all the time. It's time for us as a society to realize that we might have differences. You know, Republican, Democrat, fine, get along, disagree, but get along and work out how you can agree to disagree. And you need to come together and stop people like this from weaponizing your life against you and hurting people. And that's what I'm here for. Yeah. And honestly, again, just thank you so much, Paul, for... Yeah. Absolutely. Putting on this fight because as somebody who has been threatened with a lawsuit, my husband has been sued just for running your the GoFundMe for you. He has been threatened yet again with a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. And it's like you, you kind of you kind of have to ask, like, do you not even see what you're doing? Like, I'm threatening to sue you for running this GoFundMe for 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 trying to get your videos reinstated on YouTube that I put fraudulent copyright claims on. And this has all just been within the past few weeks, not to mention what has happened before. Mm -hmm. um, but my God, you've been you've been fighting the good fight. And I shot the GoFundMe link into the chat once earlier. I will be putting it obviously in the description for the video, but it's a little bit hard um, for anybody who's listening to this as a podcast. I will also be putting it on my website and again, my social media, which I'll mention where you can find me in a second. But if you just Google search Paul Jenkins GoFundMe, it's 
basically the first thing that comes up. So again, thank you for being like putting yourself out there and and fighting this fight. And I know that again, like I said, like Mab and Bill, you guys have kind of been randomly publicly dragged into this only recently. And I am so sorry for that because I've been dealing with it for like two years. And it's like, we can't let you have all the fun. Oh, no, yeah. And there is, there's actually something to be said as well for when they have more targets, they can't hyperfixate. And yeah, so then they have to spread the, the venom around a little bit. And, oh, I assure you they can. Well, it's like, but again, there's not as many people there as there used to be. And they've been, you know, progressively kind of wheedling off. But one thing I will say is for the people who believed in Axar and wanted to see something, like I said, I, I've spoken a bit about the behind the scenes and the footage that I've got from the New York shoot that I guess has never really gone up or been put out there before, or the, the stuff that I we got during during prelude. the original prelude. I'll, I'll share some links out there. I'll send them over to, to Paul and Tara so you guys have got them as well. Uh, feel yep. free to share them out just so the, the fans can see what what the pieces could have been. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely put them in the description for this video. And uh, all right, anything else before I close out? Claudia says good night. Claudia says oh. this the whole time. And I, I saw I saw I think a cat just mm. fly across Mab. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's been very quiet this whole time. I'm very glad that she suddenly decided now was the time. All, All right. right. Well, as uh, as I close out the webcast, just want to give a shout out to our heroes, to your patron, Tommy of the TKOK Podcast Network. Thank you so much for supporting us. And thank you to everyone who has joined us live for part two of When Fandom Goes Too Far. And to anyone listening or watching after the fact, don't forget to check out Paul's GoFundMe for his legal fees and his battle for creators' rights to copyright their work and to find Marianne at nerdbot.com. And Bill, where can they find you? You can find me most everywhere at Bill RW and the number three. All right, at Bill RW3. Last but not least, for the most current Geek Saga news and updates, please consider following me at a Geek Saga on Facebook, Insta, or Twitter, TikTok, whatever. I can't promise I update Twitter or TikTok very often recently. <laughs> uh, or uh, back our Patreon at patreon.com slash geeksaga underscore entertainment. Thank you guys so much for a lovely discussion. And uh, thank you, everybody, for joining in the chat. Have a good night. Bye. Happy New Year, everybody. Yes. Bye. Yeah. Happy New Year tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Geek Saga podcast. If you like what you heard, please check out other Geek Saga entertainment endeavors, including the Sagas and Sass webcast and podcast and Ice and Fire Con.